name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have watched a movie that really started the modern era of superhero filmmaking. We have watched X-Men. This was, like I said, the start of the big boom, to eventually be carried on with the rest of the franchise and also movies like Spider-Man, and eventually become the huge, multi The dominant form of media. Yeah, like the MCU. But this is where it started. But first, we're going to get into what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Well, I had a pretty small week this week in between the finishing off all of the obscene amount of documentary material for Gladiator and some of the obscene amount of documentary material for the X-Men. I have only seen four films this week. To start off, I'm going to talk about Hamlet, another version of Hamlet, the third version of Hamlet I've talked about on this podcast. It's obviously a drama directed by Michael Almereda. It's based on the William Shakespeare play but it's set in contemporary New York this time. It's about Hamlet. I mean, it's the same story. Hamlet's played by Ethan Hawke. Uh, He's visited by the ghost of his father, played by Sam Shepard, finds out that his father murdered his uncle Claudius, who's played by Kyle MacLachlan. His uncle Claudius murdered his father. Right, yeah, sorry. That'd be a weird, weird way to adapt it, but sure. The ghost Ah. comes in, I killed someone, Hammy. I killed someone. Yeah. Anyways, Claudius is then married... Hamlet's mother Gertrude, played by Diane Venora. Hamlet wants revenge and he goes mad and everyone dies. And also, he puts on a play. Yes, but it's it's moved to a contemporary New York setting. Instead of Denmark, as a country, you have the, the Denmark Corporation. So all of these people are like the the CEO board people for this, this corporation and, and this rich... New York family. The setting change works. It does work. It's interesting in the way that they will change the visuals. Changing the visuals suits some of the words pretty well. Like the way that it just pretty seamlessly transitions. I, I think of a, of a, you know, there's obviously that whole sequence where Hamlet goes off with Guildenstern, Rosencrantz on the, on the ship in the original. And there's, when he's recounting what happened to him, he says, you know, I, I rummaged around in their dark cabin at night and it cuts away to a, to a shot of Hamlet in the cabin of an airplane rummaging around in the overhead compartments. Like, <laughs> it's the, the text remains the same, but the visuals change the context in a really interesting way. But that can be quite charming. Yeah, it can. I, I mean, this is blatantly a response to Romeo plus Juliet. I mean, really, it, it, in, in every way, shape and form, it's it's the, the bringing in the young, hot people like Ethan Hawke and, and Julia Stiles as Ophelia, the casting of, of contemporary faces not really known for Shakespeare, like Bill Murray as Polonius. These are very much Romeo plus Juliet types things, right down to the use of the newsreader as the chorus to end the movie. I always adore that. It's heavily abridged, obviously, as as most Hamlet movies not directed by Kenneth Branagh are. It's 111 minutes, so obviously it's cut out over two hours of the play. It loses huge sections, uh, which is actually pretty helpful because some of those sections just wouldn't make sense. Like All the war stuff goes because it makes no sense in the, the context. Uh, how do they do the to be or not to be? It's okay it's it's decently staged it's to be perfectly honest that that scene didn't stand out to me the most in the scene i i I will say that 
The scene that really struck me watching it in this version was the get thee to a nunnery because mm. Ophelia is wearing a wire <laughs> in, in that this version of it. But it, it, it's interesting because of the way that Hawke plays Hamlet. He doesn't play it in the in the sort of shouty way that so many people do. He plays it very quiet and kind of sad. And that scene really stood out to me in the way that he talks to Ophelia, that he, he it really is like him really sad at what he's having to do at that moment. But the way that he, that whole scene is, is staged really interestingly and you see the way that, that Hawk is approaching the character in that way. I'm going to pause you just a second. I'm looking at the IMDb parents guide for this movie and under sex and nudity, it has a disappointing failure to adapt Shakespeare's play into the contemporary era. It includes an unnecessary amount of bloody violence with modern-day firearms, as well as other irre- irrelevant adult content. Does not do justice to Shakespeare's play at all. <laughs> and that's in the sex and nudity section. Really, they got that confused with reviews. Mm. Yeah, violence and gore. The... Our rating for this film is very well deserved, due to the graphic and unnecessary violence. Here's the kicker, most of which is not found in Shakespeare's play at all. It's his bloodiest play, other than Titus, of course. It's it's like, yeah, I'm, I don't get that. Like, it, it's true that all of the sword play, all of the sword play is swapped out for guns, but like, no one gets attacked when they aren't attacked in the Shakespeare play with the sword. Yeah. You know, when Polonius... Like, spoiler alert for Hamlet, but when <laughs> when um, when Polonius dies, I mean, that's just a gunshot through the cupboard door instead of yeah. the sword. Although, okay, it is a little bit spectacular because um, Bill Murray... Like, it's, it's one of those two-door cupboards with the mirrors on yeah. the front of the doors. He shoots through one of the doors with the mirror on it and the mirror shatters obviously and then there's this long pause and then bill murray opens the other still intact door and wanders out with his hand over his eye and then collapses forward and you see like the exit wound on the back of his head cool so um that's cool yeah yeah i suppose like there are a little bit more tarantino-esque flourishes there yeah if it's if all the swords are replaced with guns how do they manage the duel at the end? With swords, there is no poison stuff on the swords or anything like that. It's it's basically like when uh, it gets to that point where they they have a bit of a break and then Hamlet's like goading the other guy. Like, come on, hit me with your best shot, pretty much. The other guy's pretty much played by Liev Schreiber. <laughs> He's pretty much just like, all right. And then he just pulls a gun out of his coat and shoots Hamlet. Cool. And then it just breaks down into... The end of Reservoir Dogs, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> and then Hamlet shoots Claudius. It, it, it's just like the way that they they stage it all is gives it extra drama because all of this final stuff with the duel takes place on the very top of a skyscraper, on the roof of a skyscraper. <laughs> okay, now that is sick. And so they're out on this balcony, like right near the edge of the skyscraper, and they've got these harnesses attached to them, in, and so they're swinging around the place on the edge of this skyscraper. Not not like not like Mission Impossible Four style or anything like that, but like they're very close to the edge of the skyscraper as they're fighting. Like 
that's a hell of a lot of OSHA violations. Yeah. I need to see this film. But I've got to say, you know, disappointing no one goes over the edge, like, at all. Oh, bullshit. Come on, if you're framing this, like, Claudius even dies up against the railing. He gets shot and he dies slumped against the railing. Just send him backwards. Send him over the edge. Come on, come on. (laughs) Like, I want to see, I want it to be a mess for the people who are going to clean the streets. Come on, guys. I mean, now that we're basically just spoiling Hamlet, although who really doesn't know the story of Hamlet, I do think it, like, it, it does some interesting changes that I hadn't seen before, like, Hamlet's mother intentionally drinks the poison to save Hamlet. Yeah, yeah there's just there's a few cool changes. I will say that the abridging stuff unavoidably mucks up the pace, but that's yeah. a problem with everything here. And uh, how did they do the play? It's a, an artsy short film that Hamlet has made. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so he's oh, a dork. Perfect. So he's a dork. Oh, he's he's like the most late 90s emo white rich kid that you could possibly imagine. More than Romeo and Baz Luhrmann's? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Like, at least Romeo was a little bit grungy. This guy, this is, this guy's more of the, no one understands me, kind of. Is he basically the, is he basically (laughs) Ethan Hawke's character from Gattaca? Because he looks like him. Yes, because it's Ethan Hawke. That's why he looks no, like Ethan no. Hawke's character mm. in Gattaca. What I'm saying is, he's dressed like his character from Gattaca in the picture that I'm looking at. So he's he's just this. Um, it it in a lot of ways it does feel like this like post Miramax indie movie, the indie movie kind of thing. <laughs> like it really does feel very two thousands. Yeah. Have you seen Mr. Bean's Holiday? That is a very strange question to come out of nowhere Weird with, John. Pivot. No, but, but answer it, though. No, I haven't. I've only seen the first Mr. Bean movie. Then I will not continue with this dialogue chain. Okay, that was worth the trip. M- McLaughlin's good. Shepard is very good as the ghost dad. Julius Stiles and Bill Murray both fit very well as these contemporary versions of the characters. I will call out Carl Geary who is absolutely terrible as Horatio. Just awful. He, he just has no expression changes whatsoever. He's like flat, monotone. It's disappointing. Also, random coda here, produced by Jason Blum. Oh, Very early know. Jason Blum movie, before he made his own company and started producing every horror movie known to man. <laughs> cool. Interesting to see how these people pop up mm-hmm. in the past. Next up, I watched Lady Audley's Secret. It is a, I suppose you'd call it a mystery movie, although I would, I'll get to that. That sounds like the name of a Harlequin novel, like something you'd find on the Lifetime channel. Well, it's a TV movie. It's based on an 1862 Mary Elizabeth Braddon book. I read the book for a university course. It's what was called a sensation novel. And... Well, it, it's it's directed by Betson Morris Evans. It's about an aristocrat, an English aristocrat named Robert Audley. He's played by Stephen McIntosh. And his rich uncle has gotten married to a a young, beautiful new bride named Lucy. She's played by Neve McIntosh. And he starts to suspect his new aunt in the disappearance of his friend, George Tolboys, who's played by Jamie Bamber. The, the book... I suppose you would call it a mystery book, even though anyone who's ever read a story will see 
where it's going, pretty much a while a, a mile away. This changes the emphasis very much. It, it it doesn't even try to conceal what it is trying to do. It it doesn't try and conceal the mystery of the book. And I actually was not entirely certain as to whether I should just dis- openly discuss what it is in the the plot section. Suffice to say, Lady Audley is the antagonist in this story. Like, you, you learn this very quickly in both of the formats, but here it shifts emphasis. The movie is very sympathetic to Lady Audley, and there was hints of that in the book, but Braddon was also restrained by the social mores of the time that she wrote it. So this movie makes changes that are necessary, Yeah, but I think that there is a real problem because it isn't consistent with its point of view the whole way through. So, I mean, the problem here is is that we start with Robert's point of view, which is how the novel was done the whole way through. We follow Robert as he's investigating his aunt, he's investigating the disappearance of his friend, he finds more damning evidence against her. But then in the movie, for pretty much the whole second half, we switch to the point of view of uh, Lady Audley, and we see her point of view, and we see things that make her extremely sympathetic some of which were in the original book but once again that was told from robert's point of view it was told from the social perspective of 1862 it gets more emphasis here in this second half that we switch to lady audley's point of view the problem is is that it then seems like a really inconsistent thing because we spend the first half of the movie against lady audley and the second half with her and i feel like they really should have told the whole thing from her point of view if they really wanted to go this direction. It focuses on the fact that Robert has the hots for his new aunt. Oh. She's, like, younger than he is. Okay. It's one of those kinds so weird, of, though. like, really young woman married his uncle. That was kind of hinted at, at in the book, but also, again, 1862, they, Mary Elizabeth Braddon couldn't really go all the way with that, but it's it's much more emphasised here. It's, it's emphasised in a fashion to make Robert a much less sympathetic character that there is sort of a, if I can't have you, no one else can as well. If I can't have you, I'm going to destroy you kind of element to what's going on. But we just, we see too much. We see too much from Lady Audley's perspective. And as I said, they've not really chosen a point of view. So we see her doing too much that removes all of the mystery from from the story. There's no tension. There's a bit of a cat and mouse that's not very well written at all. It's not nearly as dangerous feeling as it should be. I love the book. It's really fun and frothy. It's like a it's like a Shonda Rhimes show, you know? <laughs> it's You're making reference to a lot of things that I have no relation to whatsoever. It's like I... Grey's Anatomy or Scandal. Oh. It it's that kind of like it it's this is this kind of light, twist heavy melodramatic soap opera style that right. is is like really it's it's like junk food english literature it's great but this version of it just doesn't have any of that that danger or that irreverence doesn't have the pep it doesn't and the it's cheap as all get out it was made for public television in 2000 it looks incredibly cheap no one really covers themselves in glory. None of these actors are, are going to put this on their show reel. I don't think 
the novel just, it deserves more. And you know what? You know that show Bridgerton on Netflix that everyone's falling over themselves about now? The new Shonda Rhimes show? It's like sexy Downton Abbey. Which I know you're down for. Yeah. I don't know. I think Downton Abbey is sex in Downton Abbey. I mean, Maggie Smith. <laughs> but the, like, it feels like it's it's due that kind of of an adaptation. It feels like it should be in the hands of someone like Shonda Rhimes, someone who can approach it from a purely feminist perspective, give it that kind of, of modern verve, give it a bit of a, of a, of a racy, uh, tinge to it, and just give it one of these, these big, sumptuous, expensive sort of goes in the sun. Yeah. I next watched Me, Myself and Irene. It's a comedy directed by Bobby and Peter Farrelly. Have you ever heard of this? Yes, I've seen this. Yeah. I've seen it. It's about a highway patrolman named Charlie Bailey Gates. He's played by Jim Carrey. He's a total pushover. One day he snaps and a second, more aggressive personality emerges named Hank. He is trying to recover from this when he is assigned to transport uh, a woman named Irene Waters, played by Renee Zellweger across state lines she has a warrant out for her arrest but then he finds himself in the middle of a dirty cop conspiracy and that he and his multiple personality have got to deal with this and protect Irene this is really unchallenging as a comedy I mean it's only a little bit above the lowest common denominator it's got a real cruel streak oh yeah it's a mean movie which I liked sometimes other times it could feel really dated as a result of that it felt like it was taking some it was punching down sometimes as well, mm. taking some pretty dated shots at minority groups. There are a few good gags. There's you know, this whole prologue sequence where we find out Charlie's backstory, that he was married to this woman who then cheated on him with a black man, and he is in denial about this, so his kids are black, but he insists that it, there's nothing to be concerned about and then she finally leaves him but she leaves the kids with him so there's a there's a great running gag my favorite running gag in the movie where it's these rambunctious teenagers that he's looking after and they're the most stereotypical black teen characters in a 2000s movie that you could possibly imagine ex- except like that they're just playing off of of Jim Carrey the whole time as as their father and it's Jim Carrey playing this very stereotypical milk toast sort of all righty son you know let's go play catch in the backyard kind of a of a character oh hey dad hey oh, pops how you doing man oh, what's all the commotion down here oh you know just school shit and shit how's my little guy doing struggling this quantum physics is confusing if i don't buckle down i'm gonna give myself another b plus oh that'd be whack <laughs> he's so fucking dumb he think calculus is a goddamn emperor <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you think polypeptide's a motherfucking toothpaste <laughs> oh i gotta get out of here i don't want to have to bust a cap <laughs> kisses <laughs> daddy I don't know how politically correct the whole gag is, probably not very much at all, but I really appreciated it because it wasn't cruel like the other ones, like the, some of the other gags were. It wasn't punching down. It was actually like, like no, he loves his kids and, and they love him. And yeah. it's it's just like that. It's sincere. Yeah, it's very sincere. It's very earnest. It, it just happens to be playing with these very stereotypical ideas that, 
were in a lot of of comedy movies in the 90s and it's it's sort of addressing those my favorite gag is when he gets injured then he starts whistling out his nose like the the breathing becomes oh it's just hilarious to me there are some live wires here that it just goes ahead and touches (laughs) the the language has aged poorly some of the language that is used particularly surrounding the mentally ill yeah there are a few gags that make you go, oh, oh, oh dear, that hasn't aged very well at all. I am always a little unsure of how to approach these kinds of movies because split personality really seems like it's the last mental illness that society is comfortable with making fun of or presenting mm. in a negative fashion. Yeah. And... I mean, I know that there's this whole debate in the scientific community about dissociative identity disorder, how rare it is or whether it even is a thing at all, whether it is actually misdiagnosed. But it really, sometimes it makes me really uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. It really depends on the tone that it's being addressed in as well. I don't find something like Psycho particularly offensive because of the way that it's grounded. Mm. As a source of humour, it starts to... Yeah, and you know, we'll we'll probably talk about this in a little bit, but Split, I have conflicting opinions on. Yeah. Because on one hand, you've got an absolutely brilliant James McAvoy performance, but also... And it does take it seriously to an extent. Yeah. yeah. But it's also like, if what if one of the Split personalities was a monster? Then the person would be a monster. Like, mm-hmm. it's a little... But and, it, and it's also that whole thing of, well, he's got split personality, so of course he's a serial killer who's keeping cheerleaders locked up in a warehouse. Like, how many how many times have, like, name, name the split personality movies or stories. It's always in the context of either a comedy like this or the split personality as a villain. Mm. Or split personality as a element of an unhinged personality. That That's what the... Disney Plus series Moon Knight is going to rub up against. Yeah, it's just, it's a little, I'm not sure quite how one, what the ideal way is to navigate all of this. Hmm. You need to be able to sort of take it in stride or or movies like Me, Myself and Irene and Split are going to cause problems for you. Yeah. I do like Jim Carrey in this. He's in control Hmm. of his worst tendencies here. He's, He's mostly a little more buttoned down than usual. And he, you get some fantastic physical comedy stuff with him, that scene where he's yeah. fighting himself, switching between personalities on the fly. And Zellweger is very good as well. It's too long, though. It's almost two hours. Yeah. It has no business being that long. But it's available for streaming on Foxtel now in Australia if anyone's interested. Lastly this week, I watched The Convent. It is a horror comedy directed by Mike Mendez, and it is about a collection of idiot college students... They go to an abandoned convent to hang out, but... As you do. There are satanic worshippers who are also in the convent at that particular time looking to to summon the devil and accidentally summon demons instead because it, it turns out that this convent is shut down because all the nuns got possessed by demons and <laughs> that's why it's been shut down for all these years. The demons come out, they possess the Satan worshippers, and they're kind of infectious too, that when they attack other people, 
they become demons. Uh, this is a real throwback to 80s horror. It's really tongue-in-cheek. It's really silly. Like, it's pitched all the way up to 11. It's absurd. So do the demons act like the Deadites in Evil Dead, sort of? No, they more just act like 28 Days Later zombies, pretty much. Right, okay. But, like, with more, like, like they're kind of sped up, in a way, so okay. they look more jittery as they move. Oh, it's sort of the Jacob's Ladder thing. Haven't seen Jacob's Ladder, so I'll have to take your word for it, but... It's really... You know, the the shaking the head really quickly thing that you see in 2000s movies all the time. Oh, sure. And it's just like the, the sort of jittery way that they move and, and the footage yeah. of them seems to be sped up a little bit to... Yeah, to that's what I mean that. by the Jacob's Ladder thing, because Jacob's Ladder popularized yeah. that technique. It's got some effective horror imagery in it. There's some cool designs on these demons that, that make the most out of this low-budget setting that they, they're dealing with. There are some stereotypes here that I imagine are going to be potentially problematic for some people. The cast is not good, but it totally fits the tone that they're working towards. Like, it totally fits that kind of, of forgotten B-movie on the video store shelf tone that the whole movie's going for. Adrian Barbeau, Bill Mosley, and Coolio, of all people, make cameos in this film. Oh. But uh, I've really got to call out this generally unknown actor who, as far as I can tell, hasn't really worked very much at all since. Uh, David Gunn plays the the leader of these Satanists who uh, works at a Dairy Queen in his spare time. And <laughs> it's, it's the most ridiculous balls-to-the-wall performance. Like, he's just pitching it so over the top. It's It's... Very erudite, very aristocratic, almost, the way that he's doing it. It's really cheap looking because it is really cheap. It's poorly shot because the people behind the camera aren't particularly experienced or innately talented. I didn't want to go that uh, that negative, but sure. That said, I know you guys like to watch goofy, dodgy horror movies with your family. Yeah. Yeah. We do. This is available for streaming on Prime Video. I strongly okay. I strongly recommend it for one of those kinds of of viewings because it is really goofy, it is really tongue in cheek. It has a lot of really over the top funny moments. It's it's a good movie to sort of watch and do the mystery science theater thing over the top of. I mean it yeah, starts cool. with a flashback of a uh of a teenager of a teenage girl walking into this chapel while You Don't Own Me plays in the background and starts gunning down all of these demons with a shotgun. Like, it it seems like it would be fit well for that kind of a of a, of a viewing experience. But anyways. Huh. It, it, it says, The Convent Restored. Restored from what? It's from the 2000s, guys. Oh, it's... From t- from the year two thousand, but it look it looks like it could have been made in nineteen eighty two. Like, <laughs> cool. Adding that to the watch list. Anyways, that's me done for the week. How about you two? So I'll talk about okay. So I'll talk about the thing I watched first. The flight attendant. This is a series starring Kaylee Cuoco as a reckless flight attendant with an alcoholism problem, waking up in the wrong hotel in the wrong bed. With a dead man. And all of the chaos that surrounds that, it eventually turns into sort of a mystery about who killed him and why. This is a 
dark comedy, but it has ex- incredibly dramatic moments in it. Kaylee Cuoco, and I'll just say this, the cast of, of uh, Big Bang Theory is not the problem with Big Bang Theory. No. All of the actors I've seen do better shit. And this show shows how talented Kaylee Cuoco really is. She kind of did the... um the Nicole Kidman, Reese Witherspoon thing of, like, starting her own production company and producing it and shepherding the book version and adapting it and everything yeah. as well, didn't she? Apparently, she bought the rights to the book, the book to adapt, before reading it. Because she apparently read the blurb on the back and it was just so, you know, oh, eye-catching for her. That's risky, though. You could read it then and be like, oh, no, it's a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> the good thing is, the the story of this series is fascinating. You've got, it's this cat and mouse game between this alcoholic who's on a downward spiral, trying, oftentimes in vain, to figure out the mystery of who killed Alexander Sk- Sokolov. This man who she met on the on a plane, had a night with, blacked out, and then woke up. With him having his throat slit. Having had his throat slit. Not, she didn't wake up while it was being cut. Uh, and the story is helped along by a fantastic cast. You got Michael Huseman, who listeners would recognize from Haunting of Hill House. He played Stephen. And Dario Naharis in Game of Thrones. He's great in this as Alex Sokolov, who you only get a little bit of from him being alive, but for the majority of it, he's this voice in her head that you get in these scenes where it shows how much chemistry the actors have. You also got, who I think, the person who I think is the MVP of the show, Zaya Mamet as Annie Muradian. She's Ka- Cassie Bowden, Kayla Kuruko's character's best friend, and she's also a lawyer, and... That creates conflict with her with their relationship because Cassie is losing it. She's she just blurts things out, and as her lawyer, Annie's saying, "No, stop it! I'm saying this as your friend. Shut up!" And as your lawyer, shut up. So it's got this really cool dynamic, and you've also got Michelle Gomez as this scary, scary woman called Miranda Croft, who may or may not have been the one who killed Alex. This show has fantastic acting across the board, and the character of Cassie, played by Kaylee, is just fascinating. And they take her character in directions that I do not want to spoil, because you will want to watch this. Yeah, it is on my list. Yeah, I haven't watched the final episode, but I know what happens in it. It's been renewed for a second season already. It was originally going to be a... A limited series, but then it, I mean, this is like the HBO Max breakout show. This is their first yeah. big, big like zeitgeist hit. Yeah, and the music is fascinating too. It's got a score by Blake Nearly, and it's it's chaotic in a really interesting way. A lot of madness on the piano, odd time signatures that show how sort of jagged Cassie's memory of the night's events really are. So, it's fascinating. Perfectly acted. Kaylee Cuoco needs to be in more serious stuff. Because this shows that she has serious talent. Yeah, that... between this and Harley Quinn, she's really redeeming herself yeah. for doing 
what, 11, 12 years of the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, and it's, yeah, she's really good in this. She's doing what Jim Parsons is doing, where she's picking these really interesting roles, or she's going for these really interesting roles, and getting them, and is redeeming herself for it. I just, I want the pe- person who plays uh, Wallowitz and the person who plays Raj to do this, because I know they've got it in them. I know they've got it in them. We also watched The Longest Yard, not the Burt Reynolds one. We watched, oh, the, the flight attendant can be found in Australia on Binge, if you've got that service, because we don't have HBO Max yet. Apparently, something is happening with that yeah. this year. Yeah, it's unclear. Yeah, who knows? This is part of their like whole. Wouldn't you know it? But they're 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 doing that whole movie day and date thing in the, during the same calendar year that they're rolling that out internationally. Just a coincidence, I'm sure. I'm sure that had nothing to do with the the calculations behind that. Yeah, we'll uh, just have to see how it goes. Yeah. So back to what I was saying. We watched the longest yard. This is not the Burt Reynolds version, although he is in it. This is the Adam Sandler 2005 version of The Longest Yard. And of course, when you think Burt Reynolds, you of course think, well, the the modern day Burt Reynolds is Adam Sandler. When they remake yeah, Boogie no. Nights 20 years from now, it'll be Adam Sandler. No, that would you be know hilarious. Be James Marsden. That you you only say that because James Marsden was meant to play Burt Reynolds in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I do. Yes. It'd be Robert so, Downey Jr. though. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, I'm just thinking <laughs> yeah. of how I'm trying to think of what Smokey and the Bandit would be like if it was Adam Sandler instead, and he had a stupid voice, <laughs> <laughs> like Hoobie Halloween's voice in Smokey and the Bandit. Uh, it's but just anyway. Hoobie Halloween is a bandit. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. But no, uh, we watched The Longest Yard, which follows Paul Crew. A revered football superstar back in his day. He's his star has faded and he's a messy drunk now. He goes on a drunk driving spree and it lands him in jail. Where he finds out that he was specifically requested by the warden, but played by James Cromwell, who is aware of Paul's athletic skills. And Paul has been assigned to assemble a team of convicts to square off in a football game against the sadistic guards. With the help of a fellow convict called Caretaker, played by Chris Rock, and an old legend named Nate Scarborough, played by Burt Reynolds, you know, hijinks in in shoe. Do you have any thoughts on this movie, Harley? Yeah, I do. It actually takes itself decently seriously. Yeah. At times, there's moments of real drama. There's moments of threat. Serious, Serious threat. Yeah, I agree. It's It takes... The idea of institutional corruption seriously. Yeah. It obviously does sanitize the American prison experience a lot. It takes the it takes certain issues very, very seriously. Yeah. While also still being a comedy. There is some contentious stuff in the film, due to when it was filmed, but it overall has a good message of redemption. Yeah. And addressing one's past mistakes and fixing them. Cromwell is fantastic as the warden. He's this sinister figure, for most of it, who puts on a veneer of... A veneer of respectability. And, you know, also that veneer of Southern charm. Yeah. But you can tell it's a serious act. You also got William Fitchner 
as well. And he's a really interesting performance in this. He plays the head guard who seemingly is unaware that the guards under him are pieces of scum. Yeah. Uh, but Adam Sandler's performance is one of those really honestly subdued performances out of his repertoire. He's not playing a character who has anger issues. He's not playing like a mean-spirited person. He's not putting on a dumb, stupid idiot voice. It's... Yeah, he's just playing a guy. Which... And, and that and that leads to a real sense of honesty in the yeah. performance. And it the movie also got me thinking, what would a completely Adam Sandler character field football team look like? You've got the character from Longest Yard, you've got Bobby Boucher from Waterboy, uh, you've got Hubie Halloween, you've got his character from Punch Drunk Love, you've got... Mr. Deeds? You got Mr. Deeds, you got Billy Madison. His character from Anger Management. You have the Zohan. They'd be unstoppable. Oh god, the Zohan. Yeah. Don't remind me of the Zohan. What was that, and Lawson? Don't remind me of that movie, the Zohan. Don't... Ugh. Is yeah. it on the list? No, I saw it when it came out and I was just like, oh my god. That was probably anyway. the, the last point. That that was probably what solidified my general dislike of Adam Sandler. As I was like, really? okay, I've seen that. I've seen Billy Madison. I could get on board with this. All right, but no, Zohan. No, we're done here. I don't hate Zohan. I'm just going to put that out there. This is a pretty good adaptation of the original Burt Reynolds film. It and it's a really good football film as well. It, it's one of those really well realized attempts at that like in terms of the actual choreography on the field it's quite effective in that because sometimes it can be kind of shoddy people take big hits yeah so it's very well done in that regard we also watched a new series on netflix called the history of swear words it is hosted by nicholas cage where they where each episode runs through the etymology and origins of a particular swear word and how that swear word has changed over the course of history how some swear words have gained notoriety or have become reclaimed by certain communities and how they've been used in politics and how they've been used in people's personal lives and yeah. how they've been used in music movies all of that stuff. How long are these episodes? They're not very long. Like 30-ish minutes? Okay. They do talking head interviews with a lot of comedians like Jim Jeffries. Sarah Silverman. Nikki Glaser. Yeah, it, Nick Offerman. But this is a pretty interesting series. It's fascinating to me, the history and etymology of these swear words. Yeah. I, I like finding out the actual origin of the words, not just the... The bullshit ones you come up with or you hear online, like, shit. Its origin was not someone's last name, but but rather it referred to refuse of most sorts. But it's an interesting series. It can kind of... How often they swear in the show can become kind of draining. So you really have to pace yourself. But they use Nicolas Cage perfectly. Yeah. Nicolas Cage is a fantastic host for the series because... He swears a lot in his films, but he is not the actor who has sweared most on screen. That would be Jonah Hill. Because really? of Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. But there's not like, there's not another, like, when you add up all of the Samuel L. Jackson movies, it doesn't... No. Nope. Oh, wow. We're talking specifically about the word fuck. Okay. Yeah. 
You would think so, that it'd be Samuel L. Jackson, but it's not. It's Jonah Hill because of his character in Wolf of Wall Street putting him over the edge. It was like 197 times in that one movie. Mm, yeah. So that really pushed him over the edge. Do you think they could get a second season out of it? I'm just looking so, at the different words that they've talked about in this six episode first season. I reckon you could get another six episodes. Yeah. Which which other words? Well, they didn't cover crap. Yeah. But it's an interesting series. But I can't go through the list of stuff they address without swearing. <laughs> yeah. And using some of the hard ones. But it's an interesting series. I look forward to what they intend to do with it in the future. If they intend to do anything in the future with yeah, it. Yeah, if they do. It, it might not get the returns they want, but it's just a fun little show. Like, this just seems like an interesting little show that they can produce fairly cheaply. Just get yeah. people in a room with a camera on them. That's... Mm. Yeah. It, it's just a neat little show. And they talk to, like, experts in linguistics and yeah. experts in, like, feminist politics and all of this stuff to really track how these words are used throughout history. It's fascinating. We also watched Wonder Woman 1984. Now, we watched that at the start of the year, like, the week we came back from our holiday. Yeah. But we sort of held off on it because Lawson did get the chance to, and he still hasn't, but we're unsure if he is... Uh, gonna get that chance, so we decided to talk about it today. Yeah. We're not gonna get too too deep into it, because a lot of it is very spoiler-heavy stuff. Mm. Wonder Woman 1984 is set, predictably, in 1984. It's really carrying on from a lot of the stuff you see in the first Wonder Woman film. Gal Gadot returns as Diana Prince, Wonder Woman. In the trailers, you'll see that, you know, Steve comes back. I just forgot his last name. Trevor. Steve Trevor comes back. How do I know that and not you? <laughs> I don't know. I was just blanking. But in this one, a gemstone is found that can grant wishes. And that is being sought after by Maxwell Lord, a shifty businessman who has been doing Ponzi scheme after Ponzi scheme in an attempt to gain wealth. He is played expertly by the man Pedro Pascal. And we also get introduced to Barbara Minerva, who works at the same museum that Diana works at, but has a real focus in a broad group of categories, including cryptozoology. Now, this is a movie that's very based around desire and the price that you pay for getting your wish. A lot of the performances are fantastic. You get uh, Kristen Wiig's Barbara, Barbara Minerva, also known as Cheetah. Yeah, I'm not giving Wonder Woman a pass on this CGI when no one else gave my beloved cats a pass. Double standard. Dude, I am going to have to disagree with you on that. It is much better. It's it's better for a shorter period of time. It's more consistent than cats. Cats was consistent. You just didn't like what you were looking at. It was uncomfortable to see. Okay. It was like a bunch of naked people. I'll tell you this. I prefer the design of Wonder Woman 1984's Cheetah more than I enjoy the design of, uh, you know, McCavity or Skimbleshanks or, or God forbid, Bustopher Jones in White Spats. Let's not get into a cat's discourse here. It doesn't scare me as much. Kristen Wiig is fantastic in this. She has a real fierceness... And at at the beginning, a real gentle gentleness yeah. and a real kindness. So it's a fantastically complex performance from Kristen Wiig. Certainly the best serious performance I've ever seen her do. Uh, Pedro Pascal is fantastic. Because of course he is. He has this mix of pride 
desperation and utter narcissism. He's the most complicated and sympathetic villain the DCEU has had. It's like, it's so close to Zod levels of complex, but he's certainly a better person than Zod. I think it's beyond Zod, it's beyond black mask it's beyond all of these other people because you get practically his full backstory mm. and you don't get that with it with everyone else you sort of have to form how you think they would have been in the past according to how they behave now but you see all of maxwell lord you see everything about him yeah and he just becomes super fleshed out because of that this movie introduces a lot of elements that are, you know, very interesting Wonder Woman elements. There are certain little references back to the comics that really tickled me. And references to the old show. The music by Hans Zimmer is fantastic. Yeah. It's this really lush, orchestral, string-heavy and horn-heavy Yeah. score that, honestly, a lot of it sounds like the Olympics. If that makes sense. But the thing is, this movie doesn't feel... It's set in the 80s, but it doesn't feel like it needs to be. No. Because a lot of the stuff that's talked about, like corporate greed and the political tension, that shit exists now. Mm. So it's not necessarily necessary to be set in the 80s. I think it's purely there for aesthetic reasons and also not to conflict with what's currently happening in present time in the dceu whatever that ends up being yeah because who who honestly knows i feel like uh, i don't know if it's just like um an incorrect impression but i feel like we're probably gonna know what the continuity of the dceu is after that justice league snyder cut and the flashpoint thing come out i imagine so because they have when they have announced a third Wonder Woman film, uh, Patty Jenkins is back, and that one will be a contemporary story. And a lot of the directors who made movies after Justice League or were making movies uh, while Justice League was in production have gone on record as saying that they followed Snyder's version of events in the movie. But also, like, at least of the ones that I've seen... And I've seen all of them except Wonder Woman 84. Mm. There's not much referring to the Justice League stuff at all in any of them. It doesn't really clash too heavily. Yeah, it doesn't clash too heavily, but they have said that, like, tonally and thematically, it follows on from Snyder's version of... That's at least what Patty Jenkins has said. Pretty sure James Wan has done that too. Um, This is an upbeat film, but it also like, puts Diana into situations that she's never been in before. Yeah. It really tries her like that. You can watch that if you're in America on HBO Max. If you're anywhere else, you have to get your ass to the cinema. What's your thought on the on the general backlash to Wonder Woman 84? It's over... Like, I liked it. It's a perfectly good movie. It's not as good as the first, but it's not shit. Like, I saw this thing on Twitter where people are going, there's, it was this hashtag a couple of weeks back, bring back saying okay, because nowadays there's that whole, it has to be, like, the second coming of Citizen Kane, or else it's garbage, which is a very unhelpful mindset. I think people were just psyching themselves up for, you know, that 
conversation around the first one was 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 one of the best superhero movies ever made, and they were mm. expecting something like that, and it just because it wasn't, the the backlash happened. I I have a very controversial opinion of thinking that uh, the first Wonder Woman is fine. It's not great at all. It's it's perfectly good. It's right in the middle of the pack when it comes to superhero movies. What what do you think is the best superhero movie? Oh. Do not say Dark Knight. God damn it. Don't be basic. <sighs> See, I I have really I don't know if I can really pick something out because I have really like complicated feelings about a lot of it. If, am I looking at it mm. simply as a standalone film? Am I thinking about it in terms of like Adaptational adaptation. Am I thinking about it in terms of like the heroes that I like the most? Am I thinking about it in like I could say Endgame, but Endgame is like the culmination of twenty three movies. It it it's like it's not the same thing as saying The Dark Knight or or something else. It's it's, it's I don't know. I'm not sure I can I can call that. But yeah, I I thought that the general reaction to the first Wonder Woman and indeed to Black Panther. I didn't see it in those two movies. I thought both of them were very entertaining movies that were right in the middle of of the level of quality. I think that there were there have been much better Marvel movies and there have been better DC movies uh, than than those two movies. I think my impression was that the importance culturally of what those movies represented sometimes boosted a generic story. That's fair. That's fair. I happen to quite like both of those yeah. uh, quite a bit, but that's just personal mm. taste. What's your favourite DCEU movie? <sighs> Complicated. Probably, I know the one I've defended the most. <laughs> but it's not the one I had most... F- it's not the one I've yeah. had the most fun watching. I'll say Birds of Prey. I'd say the one I had most fun watching was Aquaman. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, Aquaman, yeah. Just, like, in terms of technical achievement and visual... Yeah. Either style. Aquaman or Birds of Prey, but for different reasons. i got to preface this by saying I don't think it's the best. It is my favourite. It's Suicide Squad. Yeah, okay. Because it's doing something so different. Mm. Yeah. I like that idea of the, the, the Avengers villains, the Justice League of villains. I like that a lot. And they're all unrepentant arseholes. Uh, I'm very looking forward to the James Gunn movie because I I hope to be able to say actually make a legitimate argument that the James Gunn Suicide Squad is the best and not just my favourite. <laughs> mm. I I think it personally could be. What about Birds of Prey? Uh Birds of Prey. I I enjoyed it, but um, it's Birds of Prey was more on the level of I I think you know probably Man of Steel and Suicide Squad and. Yeah, I think those are the only two ones that really have stood out to me with the DCUU stuff. Um, hmm. I like Aquaman a lot because it's just, it's like a stable good time throughout. It's like an adventure movie. Yeah. It doesn't bog itself down in the superhero. It's more just... We, we, we can get into this in, at a later date, but I feel like a lot of the DCEU movies, even the good ones, are operating at the level of, of the middle of the pack of the Marvel movies. Like, Aquaman and Shazam are both very fun movies that I enjoy a lot, but I feel like they're on the level of Thor or the first Captain America movie. Okay. And, you know, that's that's kind of unfair, because, of course, you know, um, I would would say that with the exception of Iron Man 1 and The Avengers, most of the first 
five or six years of the Marvel movies, I would put in that same area. I don't think it's t- mm. until like Guardians of the Galaxy that they they started really experimenting with the format and really getting really ambitious with what they were doing. I look forward yeah. to the DCEU reaching that kind of, of period. I'm hoping that Flashpoint is going to usher that in because God, God knows they need it to cauterize all of the different continuity threads. Mm. And and all that, like, Michael Keaton... It's going to be wild. Yeah, like, it has the potential to really, like, bring it up a notch. It's going to be weird. It's just going to be very weird. And talking about weird... We also watched the first two episodes of the new Disney Plus original series, WandaVision. Talking about the MCU and the consequences coming out of Avengers Endgame, WandaVision stars Wanda and Vision. They have moved into a new town. It is, like... Straight up, like a 1950s sitcom. Lawson, it's exactly what we wanted. When we talked about <laughs> it all that time ago, with the when we still had the bloody news thing, it's exactly it. Format with little bits of fuckity weird, creepy shit. <laughs> and then, continuing on, on a technical standpoint, on an acting standpoint, it is what we wanted. They filmed it in front of a live studio audience. Legit. At least for these first two episodes. Yeah. It is fantastic. I've heard that it's like placing its characters in actual shows. Like Bewitched. More or less. No, not within the shows, but certainly within the style. So like parodies of them. Yes. Yeah, pastiche. Like, less like they're, they're acting it like, I don't, I don't know, just off the top of my head, Wanda would be playing the witch in Bewitched and... Vision will be yeah, playing the yeah. husband. Okay. So it's not like they're walk-on roles. <laughs> in, no, yeah. God, no. This is, this is a very charming show that really shows off not only the chemistry between Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany, but also how funny Paul Bettany can be. Yeah. He is an absolute laugh riot in the second episode, where he gets given a stick of gum by the other people who are part of the uh, Neighborhood Watch. But it gunks up the works. Yeah, and makes him act drunk. He goes in sort of... He goes in an interesting direction with the performance. It's a very, like, Fred Gwynn from the Monsters. It's like Fred Gwynn from the Monsters crossed with Rick Mayall. And it's like, yes, absolutely that's what he's doing. But there's certainly some bits of, like John said, very odd shit that occurs. Like, it's certainly really scary moments i've heard it compared a little bit to david lynch having kind of strains of that running through it yeah oh yeah the really creepy moments of have a very david lynch feel to them it does this thing where it's proper sitcom shot composition and everything and filming and editing but then when something creepy happens keeps the same aspect ratio and the same quality in the film, but it does close-ups and it does more modern cinematography techniques. It just feels weird. To really emphasize that this is a, this is a fucked up moment. Something is wrong. Something has caused wonder and vision to be stuck in this thing. Is it wonder doing it herself, or is it something... Is there an outside force influencing her to create Mm. this? Yeah. This is a real shot in the arm for Mm. the MCU, considering 2020, there was an essential drought. 
Yeah. Of MCU stuff. Of course, uh, Black Widow was meant to come out that year. Still hasn't. The Eternals was meant to have at least a goddamn trailer. <laughs> well, it was, it was meant to be Black Widow, Shang-Chi, and the Eternals all in 2020. Yeah. But, it, of course, it's now it's it's the first year since 2009 where there wasn't a Marvel movie. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a real nice shot in the arm. It is certainly the weirdest thing they've come up with. It's if like the... Legion crossed with Doom Patrol crossed with... David Lynch, if he had a baby with Kafka. See, that's exactly what I want these these Disney Plus shows to be, like exploring. I just, that's, you're selling me on this really, really well. It is certainly the most unique thing the MCU has ever done, because the, one of my criticisms of the MCU is the, you can always tell they're going off a house style. There's uniformity. There's, it's very homo- homogenous. They've tried to get away from that more recently, but but yeah. Especially in the early goings, you were seeing... But this is certainly unique. Capital mm. U. If the rest of the Disney Plus Marvel shows carry on this level of quality, um, and this level of creator control... Then we're in for a treat. We're in for a massive treat on our TV See, screens. that's what I really want from the Marvel stuff on... Um, on Disney Plus, from the Star Wars stuff on Disney Plus, from the DCEU shows that they're starting to do for HBO Max. Like, I want the I want the the stranger, more ambitious. Like, just poke at all of the different corners that that maybe you mm. couldn't justify making a two hundred million dollar movie in this style, but you can make a TV show like like WandaVision, like Doom Patrol. Like the Mandalorian, get weird, get weird, but like also just explore different ideas. Like one of the things that I'm pretty stoked about is that Star Wars show, The Acolyte, which is set like hundreds of years before the prequel trilogy, and is being yeah. com- being uh, like reports of it having having an almost horrorish tone to it. And these shows aren't going to be like the Netflix shows, the Marvel ones, at least. They are connected deeply with the MCU films, WandaVision will lead directly into Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which leads into Spider-Man 3. Not that Spider-Man 3, the new Spider-Man 3 that's coming out. The one that has all of the Spider-Man. But maybe also connected to Spider-Man 3. Spider-Man 3. Yeah. It's complex, but this is a definite great start to the new This is the time to do absolutely off the walls bonkers shit because you finished with your 20 movie 10 year narrative get weird with it yeah they're they're starting the next one though (laughs) yeah what if that's the twist like what if everyone's so excited for all of these spider-man being in the one spider-man movie and then it's just toby Maguire from the second act of spider-man 3 (laughs) like it's comb over like shitty dancing (laughs) spider-man Best movie ever. That would be the best, best movie ever. Movie ever. Film would have to stop happening. Movies would be done. We would have done it. That would be the end. Roll the credits. Roll the credits on fiction in general. If, if there is not at least a brief cameo from the John Mulaney voiced Spider Pig, I will. Yeah. I will riot. <laughs> Hopefully, John Mulaney is out of rehab by then. They could just do it over the phone. Imagine it's phone quality, too. (laughs) Okay, so 
On this week from Save Me from Smallville, we watched a couple more episodes. Season 4, episode 12, a meteor freak obsessed with killing other meteor freaks. Uh, we already had Freak Hunter, who was a human hunting down meteor freaks. This time, a meteor freak is killing other meteor freaks to save Smallville from itself. Like, uh, and go oh, really? back to uh, the peaceful past that used to have before the media shower. Yeah, like, make Smallville great again levels of shit. Uh, not really that crass, but yeah, those sort of traditionalist vibes. Um, he has the power to turn into and control sand. This sand demon kills the teleporting girl who's obsessed with Clark. He hangs her in a barn. It is deeply uncomfortable to see. And Clark uh, finds her body. She's already dead he, by then. And he does one of those trademark Superman screams. You'll love to see it. But you'll also hate to see it, because Welling really sells it. He's my boy! They're uh, hurting my boy! When Clark finds this killer, he runs in, grabs his face, throws him to the ground, and starts pushing down. Or looks like he's about to push down. Now he doesn't know that this guy has superpowers. Yeah. Yet. So it's like he was going to put his hand through his head. He was uh, going to crush his skull like a melon. But the guy turns into sand, and yeah. they have a big fight. Episode 13. A character called Jeff Johns has the power to paralyze people. He paralyzes and then attempts to drown Lois in a sewer drain. But he's not, like, happy about any of it. He is, like, desperate to keep his powers Isn't a secret. Jeff Johns the name of a comic book writer? Yes. Yep. Yes, and someone who's been very prevalent producer, writer of DC films. The amount gonna... of things in this episode that line up strangely and bizarrely with the DCEU and its production history. But wasn't he, wow. wasn't he also heavily involved in Smallville? Uh, not by this point. He hadn't started writing for them yet. It was just a reference to a prolific DC writer. Yeah, they they do that sometimes, but why make the reference the villain of the week and a vil- and essentially a villain of the week that tries to drown one of your main characters in a sewer drain? Well, they did hire Jeff Johns to write episodes for seasons 8, 9, and 10, so... Yeah. Yeah, they eventually brought him on as a guest writer, but this is before they started bringing on comic book people to write some of the stories. Wildly unfortunate is what this is. It's a weird reference, and I would feel very uncomfortable as Jeff Johns to have that be a character with my name in Smallville. Yeah. Just really weird. But now we're going to play for you the trailer to X-Men. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now seeing the beginnings of another stage of human evolution. In every human being, there's not many people that will understand people like us. There exists the genetic code. You'll be safe here. What kind of place is this? You're not the only one with gifts. For mutation. The truth is, mutants are very real. And they are among us. You must know who they are, and above all, what they can do. A change is coming. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? And those we fear... Magneto believes that a war is brewing between mutants and the rest of humanity. ...will be all that can save us. If no one is equipped to oppose them, humanity's days could be over. 
You're a mutant. The whole world out there is full of people that hate and fear you, and you're wasting your time trying to protect them. You sure you're on the right side? I have made the first move. That is all I know. He could wipe out everyone in New York City. Logan, help us. Fight with us. was the theatrical trailer for X-Men. It's set in a world where the human genome has evolved and produced special powers in a select few people known as mutants, and a conflict is brewing. Mutants are treated with fear and suspicion, and the US Congress is preparing to vote on a McCarthy-esque measure which would require them to be identified and catalogued. In the middle of this rages an ideological battle between two old friends. The first is Professor Charles Xavier, played by Patrick Stewart, Pig Stew, a powerful telepath who runs a school for mutants to help teach them to control their powers, operating a superhero group narcissistically labelled the X-Men out of his basement in an attempt to prove to the world at large that mutants are benevolent. The other is his former colleague, Eric Lencher, played by Ian McKellen, a Holocaust survivor with the power to control metal. Knowing full well... He calls himself Magneto. Well, thank you, Jean. I was about to get to that. Knowing full well humanity's capacity for cruelty towards though it deems different, Lencher is operating a terrorist cell under the name Magneto. You see, Jean? Yes. With the intent of gaining safety and liberty for mutant kind by whatever means necessary. And they're called the Brotherhood of Mutants. Since he didn't mention it, I thought I'd mention it. Oh, really? Logan, also known as Wolverine, (laughs) is an amnesiac mutant drifter with an indestructible metal skeleton, including knife-like claws which extend from his knuckles, as well as the power to heal any wound. He's played by Hugh Jackman, and he is totally uninterested in any of this. But Magneto and his Brotherhood of Mutants are trying to capture him bent on utilising his powers for some nefarious purpose, and only the Professor and his X-Men stand a chance of stopping them. So, Lawson, what do you think of this? We'll just go for you first. Since I get the feeling you're a lot hotter in this film than I am. I... Hold on. Just wait, wait. Right. Hold so on. Oh, yes, a 30 second time thing. Yeah, Jesus, this was your idea. Well, I'm sorry, but you throw me by interrupting my meticulously scripted synopsis which ended up giving all of the information that you insisted on giving yourself anyway if everyone is gonna interrupt i just have to say they're known as the brotherhood of evil mutants not in the movies not in the movie they label themselves as such in the comics which was a really weird move if magneto wants to prove his point yeah i know but like not in the movie and that's what we're going by okay we'll give you 30 seconds lawson is starting apparently yep um, three, two, one. I really love this movie. I, it's probably my, the X-Men are probably my favorite superheroes, like just in general. 
what I really like about it is the seriousness, is the the allegory, the stuff to do with, you know, civil rights, that whole part of it. I really enjoy the dynamic between Xavier and Magneto. I like the history of Magneto, how complicated he is as a villain. He's my favorite comic book villain. Stop. Yeah. And he's, and he's played by your hall pass, Mr. Ian McKellen. Mm-hmm. My favorite actor. Your favorite person. Let's mm-hmm. not beat around the bush. If, if Ian McKellen said, hey, Lawson, I would like to do a podcast about movies with you, you guys would be dropped to the curb so fast. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I, honestly, I I'd be okay with that. We'd start <laughs> our own it. podcast with Blackjack and Hookers. <laughs> All right. You ready, John? We'd get, uh, we'd get Patrick Stewart. Just dueling podcasts. Oh, no, Ian McKellen's best friends with Patrick Stewart. He'd be on my podcast. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Screw you. You ready? Yes. Three, two, one. This is, as Harley has said before, the beginning of the superhero renaissance. And it started the career of one of my favorite actors, Hugh Jackman. This movie is fun when it needs to be, serious when it wants to be. And very 2000s, unironically. I enjoy this a lot, even though I would have liked to have a pass on the script. Just in time. Alright, Holly, you ready? Yep. Three, two, one. I'm just going to preface this by mentioning the stuff I really, really dig about this. Hugh Jackman, Patrick Stewart, Ian McKellen, they're all fantastic. Conversations between Magneto and Charles Xavier, fantastic. And I like how this sets up a lot of stuff. But the direction is very workmanlike, the script needs a couple of passes, there's, there's a serious underutilization of James Marsden, Cyclops is boring as batshit, Toad is disgusting, uh, and he fries like everything else when hit by electricity. Alright. Since you've mentioned it a little bit already, I think that it's worth starting with how important this movie is to our current glut of of superhero blockbusters. It is my contention, and I suspect, judging from your, your comment so far, I'm not going to be challenged on this. It is my contention that it is not Spider Man, not Batman Begins, not Iron Man that is responsible for the current era of superhero movies. It is X-Men. It It is is the first film that came along that treated its premise seriously. Uh, And the first one to get all the heroes dressed in leather. mm. But it's like, like even you go back to the Tim Burton Batman movies, right? Mm. Which are the best of the pre-Nolan Batman movies. Mm. Before we get to the nipples and the George Clooney and the, the Ice Age, before we get to that... The ones that are actually good, the Tim Burton ones. Even then, there's a sort of there's a sort of mad circus quality to it. Yes, mm. which at, is brilliant. Yeah, which is brilliant. Yes, but it it is sort of a it's it's not it's not treating its um, premise totally straight. You know. Yeah, it's not real. You can't look at it and say this could happen in my world. No, this is Batman through the lens of German expressionism and whatever the hell Tim Burton was smoking that year. Yeah, and Superman as well. You get a, a de- pretty decent super- Superman movies, especially considering the, the time in which they were made, but there was an undeniable level of camp and sort of, hey, we're making this... Superhero yeah. movie. Although, while it has that camp and while it has that OG oh, Willikers Superman aspect, it has darkness. It has 
discussions of the politics that were yeah. happening in 1978, all of these things, like, it has a level of, holy shit, this was the same year that Ted Bundy was caught. But it's not so steeped in... I don't remember anyone stopping to talk about Ted Bundy and Superman. Well, Superman, the first it... Superman is the only Superman movie I've watched that has the word rapist in it, so well, just saying. What I'm saying is is that this is, is the full arrival of, yes. of the current iteration of the superhero movie. Yes, Absolutely. where you could look out your window and be like, that's the same world that this could yeah. be. And, you know, it couldn't have been done beforehand because the technology finally caught up to the yeah. ambition. Yeah. Um, we we now have the, the CGI, the effects to do these co- kinds of complex superheroes with their powers and, and all of the different plot lines that are involved. Frankly, film storytelling evolved to the point that it allowed that comic book storytelling, that it is much more serialized and, and interconnected. And X-Men is the first one out of the gate there. It treats its premise seriously. It doesn't wink at the audience. It expects you to buy into the reality of what's happening. It, it winks at the audience it a little bit. It winks at the audience in the sense that it's like got, got little Easter eggs for comic book fans. But it doesn't wink at the audience in the sense of, hey, isn't this funny? We're all dressed up in spandex. No. Like, there's, there's no Otis yeah. figure. No. It's, it's never poking fun at its, at, its, at its own, at itself, you know? Yeah. Well, in my opinion, it tends to... It's that whole, the, uh, what do you expect, yellow spandex thing. It still hasn't embraced what a comic book movie can be. Well, that's because we didn't get to that point till uh, relatively recently. Hmm. But it's the teething. It's teething to that. Cool. At the start. But it never, ever treats its core premise with anything other than seriousness. This movie opens in Auschwitz. Exactly. I was about to say, the movie takes its allegory incredibly seriously. The dynamic between Professor X and Magneto, between Charles and Eric, is ideological. It's Magneto's an extremist. It's the difference between the leftists who want to bring a sense of normalcy and peace to everything and the ones who want to tear it all down and start from the beginning. It's it's the difference between those two sides of things. And you can see reasons for both. Like, Magneto the- wants a complete social restructuring. Yeah. With mutants on top. I don't think that's an accurate par- parallel, though, Sean, because Magneto's not looking for restructuring. He's looking for domination. Yeah. And that domination comes from that restructuring. Complete and total yeah. upheaval. He's also a complete hypocrite. Hmm. Professor Xavier, he wants to preserve status quo and make gradual change. Hmm. A lot of times, Professor X... Okay, I'm just going to get right out there. There's a particular type of mutant or otherwise superpowered individual that I despise over all others. It's not shape changes. It's not people with strange, icky tongues. It's telepaths. I have a huge issue with telepaths. We've spoken about this. We have. Hmm? Uh, we've been through this before, but Charles Xavier is probably the epitome of my dislike of telepaths. He particular issues with Professor Xavier are the fact that, one, he feels like he can reach into your mind and fix things. He does that. He does attempt to do that with people like Jean Grey. Two, 
awful result, he runs a paramilitary out underneath his school, recruiting students to be part of it. Is that any different at all, really, though, than Batman operating his child soldier program underneath no, his mansion? No, it's not different. No, it's not different, but he doesn't see into their heads. Like, I don't know, something about Professor Xavier just rubs me the wrong way. It might just be the fact that I've read Is a lot of comics. Is it that he's bald? And he goes evil <laughs> a lot. Do you have a thing against bald people? I don't have a thing is it, against is, bald is it the people. fact that he looks like the guy from Heaven's Gate? Look, it's the telepath thing. It's the telepath thing. Most <laughs> mutants aren't a threat. Sure. Most mutants have a full head of hair. I mean, Sabretooth? He's got those John Howard eyebrows. He's covered in hair. It's the ones who don't have hair, like Professor Xavier, like Caliban, that this, Harley oh, just right, doesn't yes. trust. Let's let's give Harley a break here. This is this <laughs> does seem like one of your one of the things that you strangely latch onto as as being very challenging uh, for I, you. I'm just saying that telepaths bother bother me so much because as individuals we have our own thought process. Telepaths can disrupt disrupt that inside your own mind is the true only true privacy you will ever have all right here we go yeah is there do you get the same sort of skeevy feeling from obi-wan kenobi when he's doing those jedi mind tricks yeah but he's not reading people's minds is he he's not inserting himself in there magneto says in this movie that he can feel charles in his head looking for what charles xavier claims to be hope like do you think like, that might have just been them flirting, though? It may have been flirting. Because they've got sort of an old married couple vibe. But you've also got to think of the fact that he's talking to a terrorist at that moment. And he's trying to figure out what the terrorist is doing. It's not I get like, that. It's not like him, you know, reading the mind of the, the, the checkout guy at Woolworths. <laughs> no, I get that. But it's I'm just saying that with telepaths... It's the it's the arrogance of that power. Look, you've just seen too many situations where Charles Xavier is proven to be wrong for things that he's done in the past. You've seen Logan. You've seen both versions of when they did the Dark Phoenix saga. You've seen Legion. You've seen all of these situations where someone who can read people's minds or put thoughts into their minds have royally cocked up everything. Yeah, but at the same time, he's doing his best, Harley. He's doing his best. I'm not saying he's not doing his best. I'm just saying that the invasion of someone else's mind kind of bothers me. He was born with this power. He didn't ask for it. And he deliberately reads people's minds. I wasn't, I, I wasn't born with the choice to have legs, but I still don't walk inside people's houses. Uh, okay. Um. Just because he's got the ability to peer inside their minds doesn't mean he has the right to. All right. It's Patrick I, Stewart is fantastic. Yeah. I kind of see where you're coming from, but at the same time, I think you're bringing a lot of extracurricular stuff into <laughs> the reading of this that the movie doesn't have. That That's probably true. I think this is a mixture of your history with the comics, a mixture of neuro your own neuroses, which have been <laughs> established, that you, you, you do tend to get skeeved out by unusual things, in my experience. Or not not necessarily unusual things, but you 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 seem to latch on to specific things that seem to affect you a lot more than they do most people. Let's put it that way. Like bald people. <laughs> I don't have anything wrong with bald people. Before we move on from Professor Xavier entirely, Patrick Stewart. I mean, time and male pattern baldness 
conspired to make the perfect live action Professor X, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my God, he looks exactly like the drawings from 1963. Yeah, he does. Oh, absolutely. And he's got he's got the presence. He's got the intelligence. He's got just the pure raw acting talent to do it. I I, I love the relationship between Eric and Charles. Mm. That you can tell it's palpable between them in history. And that's just a huge credit to uh, McKellen yeah. and... Stuart. Peace Stuart. Stuart. I'm not calling, calling him Peace Stu. It sounds like a soup. I don't use the name J-Lo. I am not using Peace Stu. Anyway, you can tell that they've worked together for a lot in the past. Mm. As actors. Actually, they hadn't. They'd only no? worked together once before, and they weren't friends until this movie. They were just colleagues. They oh. knew each other from their days together in the Royal Shakespeare Company, but they'd only ever been in one other thing together before this. And they didn't actually become, like, best buddies until they started doing this franchise. You see, that's fascinating Mm. to me, because it comes so easily. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that interesting thing. We were watching this, and what was the joke that you said of, remember that night? Remember our night in Moscow? (laughs) (laughs) And then I was like, how could I forget? (laughs) But I, I, I like... I, Magneto is my favorite supervillain of yeah. any yeah. supervillain because you see where he's coming from, you know? Mm. You're kind of on board with him. It's just that he mm. takes it, it too it far. Tracks. He takes yeah. it too far. He's got some points. It just, with all of the, the killing people and the whole mutant supremacy thing, that's the part where you, you draw the line. But when yeah. you're talking about, you know, his, his points about, you know, how mutants are treated, how human beings tend to, to treat minorities that are different from the status quo, whether that be sexual minorities, religious minorities, ethnic minorities. We have a terrible history as a species when it comes to our treatment of people who don't look like us, act like us, behave like us. Think like us. Yeah. Think like us. We and so he he is a very sympathetic character in a lot of ways, especially with his backstory tied in so much with a real-world atrocity like the Holocaust. That is exactly that. Like, a an example of, of humanity's worst impulses when it comes mm. to finding a minority group to scapegoat for any number of things that they have no involvement in and annihilate, basically, or attempt to annihilate. That he is... That we start in Auschwitz, that we, we have... Magneto walking around for all of these movies with the the numbers tattooed on his arm. Yeah, that that gives it an extra an extra oomph that I don't think any other supervillain has in yeah. any DC or Marvel. Most of the supervillains are coming from a place of not trying to right or wrong. They're, yeah, they're trying. They're they're looking for personal power. They're, yeah, they're, most of them. They're not born. Magneto out of, has a loftier goal. Yeah, it's like. Like Thanos, you can kind of see, if you squint, what he's trying to do as well. With the mm. whole, you know, really, the, he, this is just his murderous version of the Green New Deal. <laughs> but with, The Purple New Deal. Yes, but, but with... The Grimace New Deal. <laughs> but he's, he's trying to save the universe because we are going to destroy it with our, yeah. our proliferation. But Magneto has that personal yeah. involvement, and it has that real-world allegory. He's, he's saying... This is how it begins. Oh, he has With that fantastic... people in a room 
talking about Dumbledore. putting everyone on a registry. Have you? This is how it begins. Have you guys seen the HBO movie Conspiracy? No. No. It's, it is a fantastic, terrifying movie um, set based on a, a real event. I think. I think. I think it was the Swansea Conference that. I, I might be getting the name totally wrong. I will actually look it up. But it's a dramatization of the real life meeting with all of these Nazi higher ups where they discussed how they were going to implement the Holocaust. And they came to the conclusion at the end of it that this was what they were going to do. And it was it's it's just it's almost in real time, this movie, accounting this um recounting this uh event. And they're talking about, you know, the mechanics of it how they're going to approach it, how they're going to control all of these people. They start talking about, oh, well, how are we going to classify Jewish people? Are we talking ethnicity? Are we talking religion? What about the spouses or children of Jewish people? Like, it, it's this whole really cold, really, like, it, it, it really hammers home the inhumanity of these people. As you said, uh, sitting in a room talking about what they're going to do to this this minority group and Mm. like it's a really just wancy conference not swancy conference wancy conference and swancy conference sounds like a bunch of people talking about yachts yeah and like the fact that it was was done over a buffet lunch Mm. um at a at a lakeside mansion uh like there's something just so coldly terrifying for it. And it's like brilliantly performed. It's like Kenneth Branagh and Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth and a whole bunch of other people. It's based on the real life um, transcripts from that event too. Like everyone took notes. They were told to burn it once they were done. But one guy didn't, and the Allies found it when they, they took Germany. So See, that's why they tell you to burn it, son. Mm. Um, there's this fantastic Should have you been scene. using NordVPN? <laughs> we don't have a sponsorship. Sorry. Uh, there's this fantastic scene in X-Men of... It's Magneto talking to Rogue when they're on the boat on the way to the uh, island. Mm. Like, that whole monologue yeah. is fantastic. Because it really cottons on to the point Magneto's trying to yeah. make. Like, the one change I would have made was I would have had him point up at the uh, Statue of Liberty and say, America was supposed to be a land of tolerance, a land of peace. Did you know that eugenics was invented in America? Ah, right. So you wanted him to point out the subtext. Yes. Okay. Yes, like, yes. I wanted him to be stated. deathly clear about what he is saying. Uh, yeah. I feel like... Because you can get the whole, it's the institutionalization thing. But I want it to be that, no, he is drawing a direct link mm. to the people that ruined his life. Yeah. I, yeah, all right. I can get behind that because, like, from what he actually what he was saying in the film, you get the America being an intolerant place, which historically speaking, yeah, but making that direct parallel to the Nazis, yeah, like simplifying it to the point of saying it, yeah, would have been super, you know, effective, and it would have been this across. thing where it would have blown people's minds because that's a little known fact that the eugenics that was practiced by the Nazi Party was developed in America mm. by American scientists. And the Nazis followed the, the techniques that the Americans used to subjugate black people. 
Uh, doctors were forcibly sterilizing Americans that they did not want to procreate. Yeah, uh, in exactly. In the early 20th century, everyone likes and the Nazis to followed on with that. Pretend that didn't happen. Um, I, I, I think that like, and it's, it's not just that obvious connection there, but there's also the underlying allegory of any number of different rights yeah. movements: yeah. the civil rights like movement, in the, sec- the women's in the second movement. movie. It's Oh yes, gay singer, singer being a gay man absolutely brings a coming out yeah. message to it, right? Especially in the second movie, you get the scene of of Bobby Iceman coming out to his parents, like right down to the 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 mother saying, "Have you ever tried not being a mutant?" It's it's pretty obvious there. Like once you get to X Men First Class. Beast is saying things when he is outed to his government employer. He is saying things like, you didn't ask, so I didn't tell. Like, mm. they're not... Like, this is... And, and then, of course, there's a simple fact that here is Ian McKellen, an openly gay man, one of the most famous yeah. openly gay actors at that point, who is is playing this character of Magneto. Yeah. Who wears a cape and helmet. Mm. Very theatrical. Yeah. Looks like he's going to the opera. I... Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting um it it has big ideas it has really big ideas in ways that not i i I don't like it when people say oh it's just a superhero movie or anything like that because there are stuff there is stuff to find in superhero movies you know um Mm. batman's dealing with you you know grief and trauma trauma surveillance states surveillance states sure um someone like uh, Superman is dealing with the immigrant experience. It's also a biblical parody with the story of Moses. Something parody? Uh, parable, sorry. Um, <laughs> parody of Jesus. <laughs> That's a way of doing it. You know, Spider-Man is dealing with coming of age. Hulk is dealing with anger management. I mean, there are always these things going under the, the surface, like the Jekyll and Hyde thing, you know? Yeah. There are yeah. always these things going under the surface, but the reason that X-Men, I think, I came to the conclusion re-watching the series this time, is my favourite of these stories is because it's dealing with such a big canvas. It's dealing yeah, with, it can these real with so many these real-world movements that are at the core of human identity and at the core of human history. The fact yeah. that it is tied into the Holocaust is so important, I think, to the character yeah. of Magneto. And just to the general tone of these stories. I don't know what they're going to do when they introduce the X-Men into the MCU because I think it is really important that Magneto be a Holocaust survivor. Yeah. And Get Ian McKellen like, again. And we're sort of running out yeah. the clock We're running on out... That. Like, you, if you're bringing in a Magneto here, he's got to be like 80-something years old and you're mm. not going to have him for very many movies. Unless it's a period piece, mm. which I don't see that being but such they, a bright they idea. They can't the do MCU. it. Like this is like we can just have this conversation now, which is they've got to do something with the multiverse to get the X Men into the MCU, yeah. right? Mm. Because you can't say, oh, by the way, there were mutants the whole time. We just didn't mention it in the other twenty three movies. <laughs> like you, I have an idea. in In the comics, the Inhumans and the mutants are sort of two sides of a similar coin. It's all to do with Terrigenesis and the Terrigen Mist. Mutants have nothing to do with it. In fact, they die because of it. You play it that all of these people who had a mutant gene, when the snap happened and when they were brought back, something changed in their... All right, I could see that. On a molecular level. 
I could, that caused mutation. I could also see. Still... I could also see some sort of you know pulse or wave hitting the whole Earth at once and changing the mm. genome so that a certain number of like people Magneto's immediately machine in this, but bigger. Yeah, but but again, like, like yeah, yeah, you could. I understand the urge to put the X Men into the MCU. I just think it's too late. It's Harley. They're late. doing it. They've said they're doing it. I don't like it. It's just a bit late, you know. It's... It, it'll be it'll be a multiverse thing. I know that. Put it this way. I'm not convinced that we've seen the last of the Fox X Men cast. But with all the stuff that the they're blood. With, with all the stuff that they're doing with Spider Man and bringing the Spider Man in, the fact that Hugh Jackman has always said that he would be open to doing an MCU thing, the fact that they are still bringing Ryan Reynolds in for Deadpool three, like who else are you going to get? I feel like we are looking at a multiverse crossover where they visit the Fox X-Men universe, and that somehow bleeds over into the prime MCU universe. Or it's just like... And Deadpool hitches a ride back in to the MCU universe. <laughs> you could have that be like the... The stinger at the end. That could be like the point mm. of Deadpool 3. Like the world sort of like smushed together. See, I, I would really love one more ride for Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart as these characters. Yeah. You could have a uh, Wolverine fight alongside Captain America doing World War One. You could, like, like that sort of thing. It'd be a neat sort of like. Yeah, there were all those back. reports a couple of days ago that Chris Evans was in negotiations. He seemed to throw cold water on that. But like, yeah. look, like they're clearly going into the multiverse stuff, and I think mm. that that's how they're going to reconcile all of these different things. It's the Flashpoint paradox of its yeah. of its. Um, yeah. thing. It's going to use it... The multiverse of madness. Yeah. It's a crisis. It's, it's... Okay, so, can we talk about the love triangle? The Wolverine <laughs> Scott, Jean Grey thing? <laughs> that that love triangle that I do not buy for a second? Yeah. That it's is... Like, obviously, oh. you choose Hugh Jackman. I mean, Nada. I Yeah, I, I just don't buy... I think Famke Jansen is quietly doing one of the most complex performances in this original trilogy, which oh, yeah. is... she's being forced to. She's being dragged kicking and screaming into a dynamic that did not need to be in the movie. But like, I, I mean, by the time you get to X-Men The Last Stand, which I know people have opinions about, but Famke Jansen has pulled together a, a really complex performance for Jean over, mm. over the, over yeah. the course of, of that trilogy, like the stuff she's yes. doing in X-Men 2. It, I really appreciated it this time. This was the first time I'd watched any of these movies in over 10 years. Yeah. With the exception, of course, of stuff that have come out in the last 10 years, in which case it's the first time since I saw them in cinemas. So I, I was noticing things as an adult that I hadn't noticed as a much younger person, and I was appreciating that. But I agree with you that I never for a second buy this love triangle, mainly because... I, they don't really spend enough time establishing it. Like, okay, sure, no. you, you choose Hugh Jackman, all right, but she has but what, why? like three scenes yeah. by herself with him? Exactly. And they have chemistry, but they don't have the right kind of chemistry. And I mean, look no. at Logan. He's a dumpster fire. <laughs> why Why would you choose him? Why? When... Over, over stable, bland nothingness that is Cyclops. At least he's safe, more or less speaking. If his glasses fall off, it's another story. But at the very least, he's got a job. <laughs> he 
He's got a job. He's got a house to live in. Oh no! Come on. He 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 lives in the house of an old dude. He lives in the house of his old school teacher. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> he's not as successful as he might initially appear. He dresses all flash, but he's like that far away from unemployment. Uh, yeah, at least he's not on unemployment like Logan is. No, he's fighting. He's fighting rednecks for money. He's not on unemployment. He's fighting rednecks for money in, in cage matches. Look, he's probably making more than Scott yeah, is. Absolutely. You think they get paid? You think Professor X no. can afford that mansion and and still pay all of his employees? No, they get paid I in food that- and board. Look, I know that Logan doesn't need much to continue on living. I said this while we were watching it yesterday. Look, the only reason why he goes to get money is because cigars and alcohol cost money. Other than that, he's pretty much fine. I don't think Um, he needs to eat. He just drinks and smokes. Personally, like, I don't get why they keep... My problem with the love triangle is, of course she goes for Logan, because they let Hugh Jackman have charisma. Whereas they make James Marsden the most boring man on the planet. Mm. Which is a severe underutilization of him. Yeah. Because he's a charismatic guy, but they make him so unappealing. He gets the best stuff to do in the three minutes that he's in The Last Stand than he does in any oh, of the yeah. two previous movies. Yeah. He is so underused, which is a real, real shame. Like, and there's that, there's that part where it's like... It's me. Prove it. You're a dick. Okay. Yeah. I'm not Wolverine, but I could have told you that the moment I saw him. He looks like a dickhead. Like, like this just what do you want? Jean reckons that James Marsden looks like a dickhead. No, no, <laughs> no. Bullshit. You're misrepresenting me. Cyclops looks like a dickhead. Um, and he is a dickhead. All right. Anyway. Um, He's teaching I, children I... how to repair motorbikes. A motorbike that, by the way, has uh, what seems to be nitrous in it. That can run faster than the than Superman can. It seems. Look, what the let's put fuck? it this. Let's put it this way. Like one of the parts of the performance that not performance, but one of the parts of the script that bothers me, and this isn't a very tight script no. a lot of the time, is how Cyclops continuously tries to remind Logan that he saved his life. You saved his jacket at best. Yeah. He was he was gonna survive that shit. Like sure. You didn't know that he could basically heal from a stump, sure, yeah. but you gotta stop reminding him. He oversells him his importance. Yeah. That, yeah. Hugh Jackman is fantastic. See, see, the thing about the dynamic between Jean and Wolverine that doesn't work is that for it to work, you need to believe as soon as they, they see each other that, oh, oh, they want to screw each other so bad. Like, mm. they want to, like, rip each other's clothes off. They're undressing each other with their eyes. Like, not to be crass about it, but it needs to have some sort of a... If, you, if you're going to do this so quickly, quality. with no with no character development and no real scenes between them, if you want to make this connection instantly, then you need two, two actors who have the kind of chemistry that just looks like an explosion where, where they're on screen. Like, like in that coffee ad that had those two actors who were meant to be brother and sister, but you can tell that they were... <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, John. We'll sh- I have to send we'll it to you. you. It's absolutely wild. Brought you something from far away. <laughs> really? Oh. <laughs> what are you doing? You're my present this year. The best part of waking <laughs> up is folders in your car.
you want uh, Emma Stone, Andrew Garfield chemistry. Yes. Sure, or Emma Stone, Ryan Gosling, you know, that kind of thing. Emma Stone like something that's, with someone Something else. that's easy to track hmm. um, as another living human being. You need that, but you don't get that. They're both great actors, but they just don't have it. Question. Do you think, now that you've seen more, I don't know if you've reached Wolverine, like X-Men Origins Wolverine yet, do you uh, think this Sabretooth is Victor Creed from that movie? It, lo- look, this whole X-Men continuity is a Frankenstein's monster held together by staples and duct tape. So um, I do think that it kind of works when you're watching it. If you if you watch it like especially that scene where Sabretooth takes the tags as a trophy, um, mm. I do think that kind of works. I mean, they only I mean, see each other face to face what twice in the whole movie. Yeah, but yeah, but when did Liev Schreiber turn into John Howard? You're giving John Howard too much credit there, mate. John no, Howard no, no, is I... like two feet shorter than that guy. Yeah, but I'm talking imagine about the if eyebrows. it was John Howard though as Sabretooth. I'm talking about the eyebrows. It's there are there are other points of comparison that you could make that are not quite as baroque as the John Harwood one, but all right. Um, how did how did Lee Schreiber's Victor Creed go feral? Yeah, how, how did he turn into a Motley Crew uh, crew member? I know that they did like they apparently did like a they apparently did a specific like comic book storyline that was supposed to say that Sabretooth had something happen to his memory as well. And that that's kind of resulting in in what's happened, but I mean, look, I I think that they may as well be different people. Yeah, I I think that you can, you just have to squint, grit your teeth, and pretend that it's that it all makes sense, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how is Mystique the Jennifer Lawrence Mystique? I mean, there's nothing not. technically that that acts against her being like there's Dark there's, Phoenix. There's death. Death acts against it. Yeah, but the events of X-Men 1, X-Men 2, and X-Men 3 are all wiped out by X-Men Days of Future Past. Yeah. This is a conversation for next week. Um, but, <laughs> but like, how do you how how do you connect the dots between Rebecca Romaine's mystique and Jennifer Lawrence's mystique? Well, you, you don't. Yeah. That one's a bit easier to track, though. You know, Shapeshifter. Yeah. Or... But, like, like, just their personalities, too. Like, it... Mm. it there's nothing that explicitly works against it. There's nothing, nothing that would wipe it out entirely, um, make it impossible to connect those dots. But I agree with you that it is kind of... It's a very tortured continuity. And it's yeah. why they yeah. went with the reset in, in Days of Future Past in the first place. Which, you know, I'm fine with because it got us the best X-Men movie. Yeah. Yes, it, it eventually did lead to Dark Phoenix. Oh, God. We're not... We're not... Mm. <laughs> um, yes, uh, can we talk about uh, what what exactly happens to Senator Kelly? Yes, he turns into a. I hate how he pushes through the bars. Mm. How I've that just sent you a picture of a of a photo of that moment. Yeah, once again, John, your your commitment to visual in jokes between the three of us on an audio format is both strange. And <laughs> yeah, but anyone who's seen this movie knows what I'm talking about. I have seen the movie, Sean. You don't have to stop the podcast to send me a photo of it. It's just like the effects are fine, but Jesus, it's. Like, I mean, I really like Bruce Davison. He he's yes. the other 
the other apt pupil veteran other than Ian McKellender gets brought over. Holy shit, that's right. Yeah. Um. So I really like Bruce Davison. He deserves more. Like, he's another one of those guys. I'm just like, you know what, Bruce? You really should be on an HBO show, you know? Yeah. Mm. Can could, we just... You, you could... If we eventually get to the point of doing merchandise, can we just have t-shirts that say, I should have a HBO show? Because mm. we say it so often. Yes. We're, we're all the pro ones too. Pro-Lithgo. Anti-Drafatchison. Yeah. Anti-Cannibalism. So Magneto's whole plan is to turn pretty much everyone in New York into a mutant. Yeah. No, he needs it's to turn the, the people leaders. who are visiting Ellis Island... He doesn't yeah. know that it's going to go further than that, but I feel like he couldn't give a shit. It doesn't matter. More people get yeah. turned. It, it's it, just it's that whole thing of, it's they go to Magneto and say, Kelly died, like this process is going to kill them. As if that's going to change his mind. That won't, that won't stop him mid-plot and be like, oh, actually, that's a bad thing. That, that won't change what he's doing. That's a... It's a He's trying to scenario. convert every world leader into being a mutant. This is the plot. Yeah. I do think it's worth pointing yeah. out, like, we've talked a little bit about that the script has some problems, that it has problems with exposition that was always going to be a little bit of a problem with establishing yeah. the X-Men, that you have so many characters all at once. It's not just like we can focus on this one kid getting bit by a radioactive spider or Tony Stark in the desert with a box of scraps. Like... It's not just that we can focus on this one person and really get into it. It's like, no, we've got to introduce all at once Wolverine, Professor X, Magneto, Rogue, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Storm, Toad, Sabretooth, Iceman. Like, it, you, you've got upwards... Jubilee in, like, five yeah. different But, I mean, you've got, you've got upwards of ten main mutant characters, Mystique, obviously, with their own superpowers that have got to come in. And you've got to establish the world, too. This isn't like Spider-Man where it's existing in New York. This is existing in a fictional version of our world where mutants are a big thing. So you've got to address that too. So it is a very rushed, kind of clunky script. And also, you know, to be perfectly fair to them, again, first one out of the gate. It's trying to figure out the best way of approaching this kind of material for a mass audience in a serious fashion. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. For me, though, this this movie as it stands, it's a lot of setup. It is and important. It is. It it, it sets the scene. It's very important in that regard. But for me, as it's got someone, a level of confidence. For me, as someone in twenty twenty one who has seen all the stuff that comes after that, both MCU, DCU, what whatever, all the superhero stuff, it feels very. The format has been refined. It just feels very workmanlike. It, it doesn't really have moments that stand out so much outside of some of the acting. It kind of feels like the pilot episode. Yeah, it's a pilot episode. And it has a lot of those same... It has a lot of those same things that act as drawbacks. And that's just by virtue of the refinement over time. But it didn't... Watching it this time didn't necessarily, necessarily excite me. Um, as it may have done at the time. It's an interesting mix of what well, seems to be both tones. It's got some jokes, it's got a little bit of humor, and it's also got a, some more of the darkness, a little bit more of the politics side of things, more of really grim themes that the DC films kind and of have. This is stuff that, that Marvel, like it, Black Panther has that too, or Captain mm. America Civil War. Mm. Like, this is, this is a... Winter Soldier. Winter Soldier, yes. This is something that um, 
I, I don't think it's totally dissimilar to, but it is sort of setting up the the groundwork for those kinds of movies to yeah. approach those things. It is testing the waters. In a lot of ways, this movie has been done better many, many times since. But it is yeah. it is responsible for laying the framework down. It is poking the superhero genre and figuring out how modern 21st century audiences, how far they're willing to go. And Absolutely. that's how we are able to have now, we're able to have the complex storytelling of Marvel movies telling the same story for 23 movies. It's how yeah, we're yeah. able to have Black Panther. It's how we're able to have, you know, all of the different, even. more stranger things. It's not just Batman and Superman and Spider-Man anymore. Yeah. It's we're able to go off in all of these different directions and it is figuring out. So I, I will give the movie a lot of passes for how how much work it is having to do here. Hmm. No, totally. I, I really do agree. I'm just saying that there's less yeah. of that excitement. And, you know, it's it's a particular problem with the X-Men because of the amount of exposition that it has to set yeah. up. Yeah. You know, it's like if they did the Avengers movie just without any of the other, you know, establishing movies. Yeah. Or, like, it's it's basically the same problem that Batman v Superman had, where I had to introduce all of these characters and com- concepts at once. I would argue that X-Men does it a lot better, but we can have that conversation well, at yeah, another time. It's, it's not shoving three extra superheroes into one scene. It's it's telling you about all of these people and I think- over the course of a film. In that sense, yes, it is doing it better than that one scene in Dawn of Justice did. But what else we're do what what else we're talking about here is we're dancing around the fact that this was relatively cheap for a superhero film. Yeah. This was only seventy five million dollars, which is still, you mm. know, a hell of a lot of money. But for one of these movies, that's not much at all. When you're when yeah. you're talking about, you know, all of the, the current ones getting made for like 175 million, 200 million, and again with the advances in technology that make doing the things they're doing so much cheaper than it was in 2000, 75 million dollars is not going to go that far. So I think when you're when you're looking at the kind of it, it's not a huge plan really, like it's not bombastic. Yeah. There are no explosions. There are no the, those no buildings collapsing. There's no one you know fighting each other in the streets and throwing each other. You know, there's a dude liquidating. There is, but you know what? You know what I mean. It's not the ending to Iron Man where they're having this giant CGI fight throughout the city. It's not the ending to you know Avengers Endgame where all these these people come. It's not even the opening to to Wonder Woman where they create this tropical island of of Amazons. It is operating on a much smaller scale. It really is the plot for one of the TV shows now. You know. Yeah, and it's doing it because it doesn't have the bandwidth to do anything more than that. That's true, and it doesn't try to overstep. Even with some of the more CGI-heavy moments, it is able to do them well because it isn't having to waste time and money on, you know, accurately showing a building crumbling after someone hits it. Or well, it's working under restrictions that lead to them being able to be a bit more clever hmm. about cutting the corners, hiding the stuff. Yeah. And you why know, do you think they put the clouds in? It's the shark in Jaws thing. The shark didn't work, so yeah. I only saw the fin. Well, they didn't have enough money, so instead we're forced to spend a lot of time on character development. You know, hmm. we get to see a lot with the X-Men. We get to see a lot about the school. We get to see a lot about Magneto and Professor X. Like, And, and also Brian Singer, 
say what, like, all of the, the awful stuff uh, swirling around him. As a director, he is far more interested in that stuff. I think you can see that in all of his blockbuster movies. He's far more interested in the character stuff than he is in the action. When he gets to the action, yeah. he actually seems a fair bit out of his depth. But Because yeah. yeah. the action's not great. Yeah, it's the characters and the themes that is the stuff that he really works well with as a director. So... What was Mystique's plan when she was fighting Wolverine and like had shifted into him? And she brings like, up her claws. She brings up her claw as if it's not just basically fingers. Hmm. Like, like, what was the strategy? Yeah. What was what was the logic behind that? What was the logic behind what Toad was doing? The moment he showed up, if I was Storm, it would have been like, yeah, well, zap. I wouldn't have let him have the chance to throw me down a bloody She's certainly the most elevator. powerful person on that team. Yeah. 100%. And it, it's that budget thing. That's the reason why she didn't just shock him to death the moment she saw him. It's... But it looks really cool when she does fully power up with the lightning oh, and electricity yeah. everywhere. Sp- that looks really rad. We've talked a bit about performances. Halle Berry... Is kind of a blank slate here, isn't she? Yeah. Not given enough to work with. Not given enough to work with, but also I think she's miscast. You know, Angela Bassett was discussed as being Storm. Angela Bassett would have been phenomenal as Storm. But, um... I can see that, and that is brilliant. uh, Just before we move, like, just to get all the cast stuff out of the way, Ian McKellen, I mean, I love him, but he's so good in this too. I love how kind of catty he is. The whole, yeah, like, yeah. like the whole like it's a little bit of a drama queen too. The whole like I love that young people when he knocks Rogue out, or or like when he goes outside and all the officers are yelling, "Put your hands over your head!" and he sort of gives this like <laughs> look at them, just this this sort of like great this, reaction. So is shot. this excuse me? Yeah, you say that to me. I'm a man who's brave enough to be wearing a cape and a helmet. It's it. it the fact that is, and, that and you... that there's also that part where he's holding all of the guns up. He's got a bullet right on someone's forehead, and he's like, "Gotta press your luck, Charles." I don't think I can stop them all. Yeah, it's it's you've got an extremely talented cast, most of whom actually weren't that well known at this point. Like, mm. you're probably looking at Patrick Stewart and Anna Paquin as being the two most well-known. Anna Paquin had won mm. an Oscar when she was, like, 12, and um, Patrick Stewart, obviously, was coming off of Star Trek. Everyone else, this was pre-Lord of the Rings for Ian McKellen. This was pre-anything for James Marsden. This was... Pre-anything for Hugh Jackman. Pre-anything for Hugh Jackman. Famke well, Jensen. it wasn't pre-anything. He had Australian films, but those were local affairs. I, I yeah. mean, pre-anything in terms of anything that made an impact anywhere. Pre-anything in terms of, of of a whole lot of these people, but like Famke Janssen. Famke Janssen was in Goldeneye. Goldeneye. But other than that, not really that well-known. Halle Berry's only just coming onto the scene. She hasn't won an Oscar yet. She's only just She hasn't started. done Catwoman yet. She's only just started to get lead roles. So it, in that sense, it's a pretty phenomenal bit of casting that mm. you, you get yeah. so many people who went so far. And that would continue too. You look at the the first class cast that you get Jennifer Lawrence pre Hunger Games, you get James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender pre mainstream. Nicholas success. Holt. Nicholas Holt. That you get all of these uh Evan Peters. You you get all of these people when they're on the up and up, really, 
got on when their star is rising just before they hit the big time. It's had mm. pretty great casting for all of these movies. Oh yeah, the casting departments are fantastic. Hmm. And they pick people who honestly do look like their comic book versions. You know, Hugh Jackman being not four foot nothing, notwithstanding. Five foot three is what Wolverine is supposed to be, I think. He's certainly meant to be a lot shorter. Hugh Jackman is a, yeah, full, meant- is a full foot taller than, uh, than Wolverine yeah. is in the Yeah, he's me- Wolverine's meant to be the size of Tom Cruise, not of Hugh Jackman. Well, Wolverine's meant to be as tall as Anna Paquin, pretty much. So. Yeah. Different movie entirely. Also, what was Wolverine's plan? He was like, yeah, I'm going to go after Magneto. A guy who controls metal, that thing that your bones are covered in. Mm. What were you gonna do? Talk him to death? I love when Magneto finds out. He's like, let's see if that marvellous metal covers your whole skull. Yeah. It is one of the things that, like, at first you're like, oh, we can can control metal. And at first when you're really just thinking about it surface-wise, you're like, oh, yeah, that's cool. But he doesn't seem like he'd be like some, you know ultra powerful guy just with that power right but then when you actually start going into it it's like actually no like he can just do so much with that power yeah like he doesn't control metal that's a lie he controls magnetism yeah. the whole line is much more well, significant. Well, no, he, he does control metal because he can um manipulate metal like he can take the iron out of someone's blood and turn them into a no platform. i get that but it's like it's so much more yeah. than just metal. Yeah. He flies, for God's sake. Yeah, that's one of the great details that I noticed watching it on Blu-ray this time on a high-definition television, which was the first time I'd watched any of these original movies in widescreen on, a, on an HDTV and a Blu-ray. You, you can see that he has metal plates on the bottom of his shoes. That's how he's levitating himself. Mm. It's, yeah. And that's awesome. And there's that whole thing of, you know when he's... Yeah, he's holding all of those police guys hostage, and the helicopter comes around. What if Mystique wasn't in the helicopter? What if Magneto was just doing mm. that with his mind? He certainly could. If he was, he's that powerful that that whole "I can't stop all of the bullets" thing is a bullshit yeah. ruse. I have to say, that's one of my favorite scenes, possibly my favorite scene in the movie. I don't know. I think I like how they do it better. They do it better in X-Men He just too. shows off. Mm. He's just showing it's, off. Uh, yeah. I, I do want to point out that the script is credited to Brian Singer's assistant, David Hayter. That David Hayter. Metal Gear Solid voice actor, David Hayter. That can't be right. You think that was... You think there was some bullshit N- behind no, the I scenes don't. stuff? I don't. To, no? Because from the sounds hmm. of it, there's a whole bunch of, of arbitration stuff going on that... He apparently was like rewriting stuff at the desk, at the reception desk that they just kept using, and it became a real problem late in production because they were legally required to give him credit or something. It became this whole thing. There's a real, there's been some challenges as to how much of this uh, David Hayter actually wrote, uh, even though he is yeah. credited uh, as the sole screenwriter. He was not. But no, I don't think anything untoward went on behind the scenes i i just think that's a a bizarre story not even necessarily that it was brian singer's mm. assistant but that it's david Hayter, the voice of solid snake who yeah. was already the voice of solid snake at that time but was also brian singer's assistant and writing an x-men movie went on to write such such hits as the scorpion king <laughs> to scorpion king's like 
Flight 180 in the Final Destination series for us, isn't it? It's like, just keeps turning up everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's it's odd. But he, he's also a screenwriter on the Watchmen movie. Mm, yeah, but they, that movie had like three writers, though. Well, most movies have three writers or more. But uh, he's, he's now a staff writer on that Netflix show, Warrior Nun. But yeah, I just think that's a really strange little like, yeah, here's David Hayter, voice actor extraordinaire. Voice actor. Hey, I, voice I listened actor, to interviews with him on the disc. He doesn't sound like Solid Snake at all. Like, it is a voice he's doing. Well, yeah, he's a voice actor. I misspoke. He's a great voice actor yeah. um, and a script writer. I mean, yeah, most voice voice actors don't sound like that. Nolan North hmm. isn't Deadpool. Dude, but he's, like, yeah. I like him as a voice actor. He's fantastic. Here's something I don't like about the way this movie was marketed. It was marketed under the tagline, trust a few, fear the rest, which I feel like the person... That's so against the point. (laughs) You should fear the few, like the Brotherhood Mm. of Mutants. The rest are fine. Yeah, like the three people who are... Four people who are in the Brotherhood of Mutants who seem to be all unrepentant killers. You probably shouldn't fear the X-Men because they're not going to hurt you um, on purpose. I like the bit where Toad snatches the bird out of the tree. Yeah, I think he did that. I don't think he eats birds. I think he did that just to upset Senator Kelly. Just like, like a little bit of Yeah. But like, like, Toad, he's a pretty good hench person. He's a good like, hench person. multi-talented. He's a helicopter pilot. Like, he's one of those hyper-competent hench people, which yeah. you love to see. So I think we're reaching the end of our discussion. I know that we haven't talked a lot about, like, specifically things happening in the movie, that more its place in the zeitgeist, but I think that's what's most yeah. interesting oh, about the film. there is one more thing I wanted to touch in on. I want to say that I, I think that part of the reason that we can credit this movie getting made, part of the reason this movie got made, part of the reason it's successful... I think it's kind of riding off the back of Harry Potter's success just a little bit. School for people with special powers that go on adventures. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that that it's a direct one-to-one parallel, but I absolutely... You mean the success of the books? Yeah. I absolutely yeah. think that, that there is something to be said. Like, I am, I am almost sure that some Fox executive somewhere had that in their heads, and that was part of why it got a green well, light. Also, X-Men is one of the most profitable uh, Marvel comics, or at least was one yeah. of the most profitable profitable. But they were, they were trying Marvel to get this off properties. the ground for years. James Cameron was going to make a, yeah. a version of it, ended up getting distracted by making a Spider-Man movie, and ended up not making either of them. That Spider-Man movie, I've read information about that. Ooh, that boy. would have been garbage. Hot garbage. Like, bottom of the dumpster liquid garbage is what that movie would have been. Yeah, but it's... it's. I, I think that there is a significance to the school of special-powered individuals. Yeah. Th- that part of it coming yeah, out of the, the sudden and extreme success of the Harry Potter books in the late 90s. Bringing up the school thing, what, what do you reckon the curriculum is like at Xavier's school for the extremely gifted... Ooh, Basic I'm, rudimentary stuff, math, well, science, Well, you'd have to adhere to the, the curriculum of Washington State, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, New York State, sorry. I yeah. mean, he would have to, obviously. So, hold on. Cyclops probably exactly. teaches shock. Yeah. You get Professor Xavier teaching science. And English literature. And possibly literature as well. How, 
Storm teaches history. There's a deleted scene of her yeah. having a conversation about how Christians stopped being persecuted in Rome when the emperor became uh, Christian, which of course ties in thematically to what happens with Mag- Magneto's whole it's plan. Like the not all of them can have degrees, can they? There's no way. But you don't. They don't have their bachelor's in education. I'm fairly certain. But Professor Xavier does. Oh. He's Xavier does. Legitimate professor. Hmm. If you were a mutant, could you just get a job from him off walking in a from off the street? I'm sure you have to prove yourself as part of the X Men first. Right. Yes. You you have to prove yourself in a life or death situation before you get to teach children. Although that's the long the way, form job interview. The way that America is, on on maybe beneficial. All right. So we're ending with the school shooting reference, are we? That's that's how we're exiting this discussion of X-Men. You can take it how you want it. <laughs> you pleased with yourself, John? Not really. Um, but uh, there's really nothing in the IMDb Parents Guide that's worth talking yeah. about. But instead, why don't we move on to who our MVP is for this movie and what our favourite scene or sequence is. I will start us off with a very predictable MVP, Ian McKellen. My favourite actor, but also, you know... I think that he's really good in this movie, and I just love the character he's playing. I yeah. think Magneto is such an interesting villain. He's so important to the whole point of X-Men as a story, as a franchise. You do know you can't pick him in Days of Future Past now. Oh, uh, fine. He'll just choose young Magneto. No, I won't, actually. I'm not as hot on Michael Fassbender as everyone else is. They should have just de-aged Ian McKellen. But... They did not have the tech yet, Lawson. <laughs> they did it in X-Men Last Stand. Oh, yeah. Oh, well. And that worked perfectly. <laughs> Keep in mind, though, all that they did to Patrick Stewart is they got him to walk. That's the oh, only difference and wear a with hat. him. They got him to wear a hat. <laughs> to wear a hat. I really love Ian McKellen's performance here. I love how he finds the humor in it, mm. but he finds the... Like the young people like like that bit of it he's such a queen about it but he is so um he has that kind of poison dignity that you need for the leader of it right and he yeah. can he can t- like he talks and he says it and you're kind of like yeah he's making sense you know he he, he until you think about what that, he's doing yeah you you needed a character like you needed an actor who could pull that off in that character yeah uh, because it's so important that you understand magneto and you kind of sympathize with him and he fully believes it too oh yeah he's a true believer so i gotta go with ian mckellen but in terms of my favorite scene or sequence i've got to go actually with the scene that you identified earlier harley the the scene outside of the train station where magneto Sabretooth, and toad have the standoff with all of the uh mutants with uh, with all the policemen with guns and Professor X comes in to chat by possessing Sabretooth and Toad. That is really good. I'm just imagining how weird this movie would be if you replaced the Toad in this with the Toads from Mario. Hello! Um, <laughs> zinger. Um, but... What happens to a Toad when he gets hit by light? I don't know! It shrinks back down to its regular size. <laughs> I, I like that whole interplay. I, it really shows you how powerful Magneto is oh, in that yeah. scene as well. And it only ramps up from there as the movies go on with how powerful he is. Yeah. It it shows the dynamic between him and Xavier really well. It it sells him as, as a powerful, scary character, but And it shows Xavier it shows Xavier giving up in that scenario. Yeah. It it demonstrates his 
it demonstrates their relationship and their history and their differing points of view in a really interesting way. That they know each other. That mm. Magneto's going to call that mm. bluff. Yeah. So that's me. How about you guys? What about you, I think John? my MVP for this is Hugh Jackman. You, It's the beginning of his career in earnest, and you get to see where everything is coming from. He's got the humor. He's got the serious moments. He's a fully formed movie star kind of from the get-go and that is brilliant and Hugh Jackman would only get more and more diverse in his choice of films from then on he stuck around as Wolverine which is a credit to him honestly and he does a very good physical performance as well in this he's sort of Mad Max in Fury Roading like he's sort of feral from the beginning and slowly becoming more and more of a person which I appreciate a lot we can probably have a discussion about that next week, but I never really... I, I think w- this version of Wolverine is, is is a particularly social one. He's, mm. he's The whole loner thing doesn't really follow through into much of it at all, mm. for most of it, I think. But we can have a conversation about that probably in, when we talk about Logan. And my, for my favourite part of the movie, even though I hate to say it, probably... From the moment Senator Kelly squeezes through the bars to when he starts walking on the beach. Because that is just so... It is terrifying from his perspective that this is happening to him. It is that kind of is... weird that no one recognizes him and Mystique is still able to pose as him at the yeah. end. Like, putting it in perspective, like, if, that was the if, day. if Ted, Cruz, if Ted Cruz wandered up a beach somewhere looking sick totally naked like just that would make listening. the news and with gills on his yeah, back yeah that would make the news you couldn't oh, just 100%. move on as if that never happened the fact that that hasn't hit the news yet is mind-boggling because i'm sure that has happened before it's just and also it gets we get our first stan lee cameo in one of these movies yeah. was he in i know they did like that those little um uh i can't believe it's not marvel during the 90s where there were the the, the generals he, he had a cameo i believe in one of the in the hulk series what, but like this what about is the, the punisher and the stuff that they were doing in the 90s no, or i don't believe he was in that the stanley filmography i mean i wasn't gonna get yeah, it to you're stanley. right you're right this is his first live action cameo yeah. so like we get the beginning of those and they would stick them he would he was, get stuck in the majority of Marvel movies from then on. He was the narrator in the 80s animated series The Incredible Hulk and Spider-Man yeah. and His Amazing Friends. He was also... He, he had a cameo in Clerks 2? He had a cameo in The Trial of the Incredible Hulk TV Yeah, 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 that's the one I'm talking Jury about. Foreman. And I just clicked on the IMDb page for that, and the photo at the top of it is of the Hulk... Uh, Tearing the witness stand apart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've seen that. It was a long time ago. Lich- oh, I think literally on the box it says, with a cameo from Stan Lee. So that's the only reason why I know that he had a cameo in that. Because that was so long ago. But yeah, I th- I think that scene, it shows how oh messy God. what Magneto could be doing The parents' guide for Parents' guide for... The Trial of the Incredible Hulk. Okay. During the courtroom dream scene, the Hulk picks up a man and hurls him across the room. Not intended to be inappropriate, 
but his hand is very close to the man's crotch as he lifts him by the legs. Do we have to do an episode on the trial of the Incredible Hulk? Because we've got a DVD of it somewhere in our house. I think we might have... Yeah, I think we've still got it. Yeah. Anyways, sorry, continue. Oh, it's done. Uh, so I'd have to say that since Ian McKellen has been taken and Hugh Jackman has been taken, I'll have to say Patrick Stewart. He, he brings a quiet dignity to the character. He looks the part straight out of the comics yeah and he has that wonderful line in that conversation with magneto the i pity those who come to my school looking for and he just has that easy chemistry with mckellen it it wouldn't work as well if it was any other two actors and patrick stewart is a really significant part of that my favorite scene is the one that lawson mentioned where magneto's displaying his full power but I also like the little incidental moments of his power of magnetism. The the ball thing on his desk. Yes. And how that's hanging off nothing. He's controlling it with his mind. When he leaves the room, they all fall onto the ground and roll away. It, it It's the really little things how awesome, that really ground him in that space. How awesome would it have been if when he left the room and stopped focusing on them, they kept going? Because it's using mm. a, such a small fraction of his power that it's this inconsequential thing that he can keep going constantly. You mentioned Patrick yeah, and- Stewart, Harley. Did you know that Michael Jackson wanted to play Professor That X? would not that have been- worked. He that would to- not have been good. He wanted to wear white face. I just don't think it would have worked at all. That no. would have hit a lot like, differently. At all. He, I just, it, it, yeah, Michael Jackson as an actor playing a character that serious. Yeah. No. Hang, hang on here. It just doesn't work. Here we go, Hollywood Reporter. In the spring of 1999, Brian Singer and a group of X-Men producers and crew were working out of the old Fox offices near Olympic and Bundy when Michael Jackson walked in the door. Wearing sunglasses and refusing to shake hands, Jackson was visiting the industrial space to meet with Singer to discuss the prospect of playing Professor Xavier in the upcoming film. I said to him, do you know Xavier is an older white guy? X-Men producer Lawrence Shuladonna recalls. And Michael said, oh yeah, you know, I can wear makeup. With that, Jackson queued up an elaborate presentation complete with the short film Ghosts, in which the pop star morphed into a 60-something white mare railing against a well-meaning performer who entertains local children with magic tricks. Yeah, talking about things that hit differently, the Ghosts music video. Like, I just don't think it would have worked It just wouldn't have worked. You need a professional Patrick actor to Stewart. play that character. I-, I think Patrick Stewart was the only person at the time who could have done yeah. it. With the weight necessary, especially going up with Ian McKellen. And it would have been weird. Oh, God, can you imagine Ian McKellen and Michael Jackson playing chess in that plastic prison at the end of the movie? <laughs> it would have been weird to hear him say, Shaman, in the middle of a piece of dialogue. It just would have been weird. This is Cerebro. Come on! <laughs> oh, God. All right, if if we're doing Michael Jackson impressions, then it must be time to end the podcast. So uh, let's say what we're doing next week. We've actually already referenced a couple of times that we'll be doing more X-Men episodes. Well, next week we'll be talking about X-Men Days of Future Past. Uh, I think that'll give us a good opportunity to talk about the the prequel cast of characters and also how the two casts and the continuity sort of intersect hmm. with each other. I would also go ahead and say that it is the best X-Men movie, but we can talk more about that next week. Um, if anyone would like to watch along at home, it is available for streaming in Australia on Disney+. Plus. It's also available for purchase and rental on the Fetch, Apple, Amazon, and YouTube stores. And in stores if you want to get it on 
like physical media, but who uses that anymore? Why would you wait for like the sixty third episode to start adding that at See, the end? It, honestly, it's the first time I've thought about it. Anyway, uh, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at. <laughs> Don't shake your Nelly. head at me. <sighs> You can also find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy County. You can find John and I on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter. Each of those is in the description, wherever it appears on your podcast app of choice. I have also started doing something a bit different now. Uh, if you're on Apple Podcasts, this episode, the episode on Road to El Dorado, and the episode on Final Destination have a new tab open. It's Chapters. So you can go from the what we've been watching, or go straight to the deep dive, if that's more what you're into. I thought I'd just mention it, just to get you folks aware. Yeah, just off the, just quickly as well, apologies for the unfortunate audio on my uh, side last week for the deep dive. Something appears to have happened in some of the processing that we do to the audio after it, and I know it sounded terrible. Uh, that's my bad, I apologise for that. We'll be making sure that doesn't happen again in the future. I don't think it's your bad. I think yep. it's just something that happened oh, no, in transit. Oh, no, it was my bad. I should, have, I should have screened it before I sent it over to you. You can also comment, like, and subscribe. Commenting on the podcast is more specifically towards the entire show. Any episode-specific feedback is through the Twitter. I've already told you where you can find that. I am Holly Lewis. I am Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will always, be Jean Lewis. Prove it. You're a dick. Yes, yeah, him.